Everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapal. Oh, welcome back, Patrick. Hey. And I'm Jim Laskowski. Hey, miss me? Yeah, I did. We're here with a bonus episode. We, of course, have our regular guest, Kurt Halfier, the Alec Baldwin of the Directors Club <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, no shit. How are you, Kurt? Not the William Baldwin? No. No, the- no, no, um, no, 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 no. I'm great. Thank you for having me on again. I, I feel kind of almost regular-ish. Yeah, yeah. well, you were on the most recent official episode, and, well, it's been a while since Patrick and I have been in front of microphones together. Yeah, that's so. true, but don't worry, we got a lot of stuff coming. Oh, sh- oh shit, you do. We got this bonus episode, um, which in which we're going to be discussing um, two films that recently came out in theaters. And they're actually on demand, I think? They are, yeah. Shane Carruth, uh, you know, he's distributing Upstream Color himself, so that's on iTunes. You can rent mm. it for, like, five bucks. Um, you can buy it on Blu-ray. You can buy it on, uh, yeah. Oh I mean, wow, yeah. Well, yeah. It seems you really can do fast. Either way. <laughs> yeah, well, he doesn't have to deal with the typical studio uh, yeah. sort of waiting period. He just. But anyway, um, it might still be in theater. I think it's still playing a couple. Box. Yeah, it's still playing at the music box. So go ahead, check theaters near you, art theaters near you. It might still be playing near you. In which case, see it in theaters. But um, there's uh, Upstream Color. We're going to discuss, and uh, I'm listing these in reverse chronological order because first we're going to discuss. Room 237, which is a mm-hmm. documentary that made a huge splash last year, not even this year at Sundance, right? Last year at Sundance. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Or was it this year? Or, did, or is it Toronto? Did it play there? I, yes, it did. Yeah. That's I, where I saw it. Okay. But it opened, I believe, in, uh, no, wasn't it, was it South By? Or it was, it was some other festival that played yeah. months before Toronto, yeah. All right, it was so, really it was like distributed you know screeners were distributed for critics last year but I guess it officially comes out this year yeah because it was it was a uh, it was definitely a film I got very excited about but uh, and I remember uh, it was a film that people were briefly discussing whether or not it would be considered fair use and would be able to be released at all mm-hmm. and apparently it does as long as it has this huge ass warning on the poster <laughs> and this huge ass warning right before um, so anyway we're gonna talk about uh, room 237 first but I think the films are kind of inextricably linked, um, so we'll probably uh, be merging the conversations a little bit. Uh, and if you are in Toronto, it, it does actually. Room 237 opens on a double bill with The Shining uh, on uh, May 10th. I'm surprised the music box hasn't done that. That'd be really awesome. I'm su- what I, what been... I want is someone to, to show the overlapping yeah. back to back yeah. screen. I would... I would pay double because you are watching the movie. Twice. <laughs> yeah, I was I was about to say the exact same thing. Apparently, that played at uh, Fantastic Fest, is it in Austin? Um, so, but uh, yeah, and well, the yeah, we'll discuss that uh, part. But that would that is definitely something I'd be more interested mm-hmm. um, in seeing. So, okay, real quick, Room Two Thirty Seven is a documentary which uh, features um, the voices of about a half dozen different people, um, sort of. And all of their wildly varying interpretations of what 
The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's you know seminal horror film, The Shining is about, uh, and and as the film sort of explores it, it it it's made up almost entirely of clips of The Shining. There are clips of other Stanley Kubrick movies. There's a couple of clips, uh, very cleverly, of Umberto uh, Bava's uh, Demons. Oh yeah, um, and Demons too. And Demons too. Uh, Just- uh, I like how they inserted uh, The Shining into Eyes Wide Shut at times. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah actually, no. there's a lot of inserting The Shining into other films, into mm-hmm. portals, into at it's one, like looking, at one seeing point, The yeah. Shining everywhere, which is kind of the theme of the movie. Yeah, at, at one point, The Shining is inserted into The Shining, you know, like. <laughs> yes, so it's So it's all mostly that kind of made of clips of The Shining. They explore sort of how it's put together and all these very unusual things that, you know, uh, that even though I've seen the film, you know, probably like eight times or so, uh, it's never been a favorite of mine, but it's definitely a film I like a lot and that I've, I've watched a lot um, that I've never noticed about the movie. Um, so I still believe that the, the even though Room 237 is like obviously the right title for this movie, I believe it, it, it should also be known as Continuity Error, the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> because... These people give objects disappear way too much credit. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, Jim, let's start with you. Okay, uh, what did you? What did you feel? How did you feel well, about? Well, I wasn't sure I was going to feel about this because I, I, I know some people have said like, oh, it's kind of like a you know YouTube series of clips of people just uh, you know espousing these theories, and it's just a documentary in the sense that real people are just telling us information or what they think. Uh, the Shining is about, and I was like, is it going to be, you know, kind of didactic and just full of uh, just theorizing that seems far-reaching, and it has some of that, clearly. Um, but I I grew to really appreciate the movie, um, even if, like, I, I, kind, I kind of wanted to see the people, uh, you know, that were talking. Really? Instead of, I mean, at times, I was just curious about you know specifically what you know what type of per- and sometimes the voices sounded very similar to me so it's hard to keep track I'll get back to that but yeah. that is one of my favorite things about the film okay so um but. i mean it's definitely a nice and sort of original touch in terms of not being talking head like mm-hmm. you know i didn't want that consistently because that's kind of played out at this point especially when you're uh doing a documentary but um I think it's kind of an interesting celebration of deconstructing film or also kind of like an analysis of how we deconstruct too much. Um, it, it's kind of like a, like a weird sort of meta experience watching it because it has that layer of postmodern film criticism, you know, because I think at one point, like, one of the guys talks about that, like, that postmodern film criticism states that, like, author intent is only part of the story, because nowadays it it is just so crucial to have these discussions where we digest the film in a whole new way, um, but it becomes like this Rubik's cube of like semiotics and like becomes a commentary on overthinking at times. I think I mean without like explicitly saying that that's the read I got throughout, but it's also very entertaining in a lot of these theories because like uh, at some points you want to like go there with them and go, Oh, I could see that maybe. (laughs) And then a little bit later, it's, you know, there's some theories you just roll your eyes at or laugh at because they're so, uh, you know, uh, difficult to process because he's clearly reaching, especially the, uh, the, the faked moon landing and like, Oh, it's 237,000 miles from earth. And Oh, it's room 237. Like, you know, I mean, but people do that. And I understand that. Like, because, 
especially like when we talk about um, briefly for Lost Highway with the David Lynch episode, I know I'm overreaching and reading too much in that film, but it's part of the enjoyment for me watching that film. Um, like maybe no one else will get that same interpretation, but it's still fun for me to sort of conjure up these ideas, even if they're ludicrous. Um, when it comes to Room 237 overall, I really loved it. I thought it was a really interesting movie in terms of a, a documentary that's not conventional and it's the way it presents things. And um, like I said, it has entertainment value, and I certainly like how we you know, mentioned that the uh, interspersing happens throughout the movie and the way things are presented. Uh, I just I, I dug it quite a bit. So um, I'm interested to like learn more because I, I think Patrick feels the, the most passionately about it and I'm I'm excited to hear like what his theory on this movie of theories is all about to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely my favorite movie of the year. Um, uh, but let's go ahead uh, go to uh, to Kurt. Uh, Kurt, I imagine you saw this before. It had sort of its recent theatrical run. I, I saw it in the middle of a festival, which, admittedly, for a movie like this. Uh, maybe not the best place to see it, although you're in a film-loving environment mm-hmm. and this movie's about maybe over-loving uh, a film. Uh, I, f- I had so- a lot of issues with this film the first time I've watched it. Now, I've since watched it two more times and I've grown a lot more comfortable with it. Um, I-, I guess there's some surface issues that I had, meaning that I had I, be- I was well-versed in... Jay Widener and Jeff Cox's analysis of the film before going in. And those, like, and what, who I are think those? I posted um, in 2009 uh, Widener's essay. It was my favorite film analysis, like unconventional criticism essay ever written. That's the moon landing one. The movie uh, actually 237 does not do it justice. Um, it is so like, it's such a, vanilla version of that theory in the in the movie because he has to make room for for like the inane geography woman which which bothers me like there's just a lot of the actual like practical minutiae of the film i did not like i also didn't like the fact that it, it just looks crummy at times um but meaning I do, what how do, how is it how does it look crummy well the the most of the Kubrick film stuff in the movie, which I would say is about 60 to 70 percent of the footage in the movie are from Kubrick films. And those are probably sourced from Blu-rays and they look fine. But a lot of the other stuff, um, it's just really grungy. And, you know, I mean, this guy made the movie for nothing, right? Like he just – they're literally phone calls. Things like when – He's talking to the one guy. I, I think it's um, oh, I can't remember who who the guy is. The guy that has the funny laugh all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and his son is like talking in the background. He's like, "Oh, do you hear my son? I have to go deal with this." And then the movie just pauses for a couple seconds, and then he comes back. Like it, it just feels amateur hour at times. But I do appreciate the idea of the over obsessing sleuth that just becomes tangled in their own like hubris like i like that aspect of the movie i i I just felt the execution of the editing in the film is strained at times uh and that and i was really hung up on that after first viewing now the second and third viewing i more just swim in the in the in the um you know 
the stew that the movie is. Oh, the, the last thing is I really wish – again, I'm reviewing the film I wanted, not the film I got. But I really wish that he could have confined the film clips to just Kubrick films. I, I really don't – like I, when, when, when he's saying like I grasped my chair and then they're showing footage from demons or whatever, it just – it's I don't like when <laughs> what, what someone's narrating and what they're showing is too on the nose. I feel really condescended uh-huh. to as a viewer, and that. I feel this movie does this often, <laughs> and and it just left a bad taste in my mouth. I, most of that is gone. Like I said, I've watched the movie three times. If I if I truly hated it, I wouldn't keep coming back to it. But um, yeah, I, I I had some issues with it for sure. Um, yeah, I, it's I wouldn't say it's necessarily transcendent filmmaking as far as the editing. There's a, I don't think it happens a lot, but I you know we're just we're you know we're just debating exactly how much it happens i'll definitely agree it happens that there's just sort of an obvious shot i mean a lot of it is just because it's someone narrating footage so it's necessarily yeah. needs to be the footage that is shown while the person is talking about like that never have an issue with that yeah when yeah. they're describing things and they're showing you like to to, to yeah. lock in visually yourself mm-hmm. like when there's like there's not a single clip of the shining in air in this movie and if they could have built the entire i don't know what is it 95 minutes or whatever yeah out of just the shining that would have been even better like that that's what i feel the um like when they constantly play the opening helicopter shot or they constantly play um wendy backing up the stairs or or danny on his Big wheel. That's mesmerizing. That's what makes The Shining work anyway. So, like, you hypnotizing right. you with the movie that they're talking about totally works. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I, I do first because a lot of what I'm going to talk about is sort of what I think the film is about and why that it sort of interests me and made me think so much. Um, uh, and ironically, like, a lot of what I think the film is about is – a lot of stuff that I have already been thinking about. So, ironically, I could have been, I could be projecting my own thing into the film before I even discuss any of that. Um, and Kurt, I think maybe you are coming to it from a different perspective than you know most viewers. In which I think most viewers will not have heard these theories before, um, and or will not have had these sort of just the constant weird. Uh, not even continuity errors, just you know, weird touches that Kubrick makes uh, in the film. Like not have seen those before, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think a lot of what makes the film just really enjoyable is your again, especially if you see it in theaters, <clears throat> you're watching The Shining on the big screen, and The Shining is mesmerizing. Um, and you know, this yeah, like Kurt said, like The Shining is not mesmerizing because. It's a riveting tale that's being told. It's mesmerizing because the visuals yeah. just sort of hypnotize you. Um, I think the score is really excellent. Um, I would agree. It's it's not the shining score, and I was a little you know like I was it has a retro feel to it. And I think they do a good job with yeah. it. I think it's really the score is good. I think that the I think seeing all of these things pointed out in a row of this movie that you that if you are an all film fan, you've probably seen multiple times. Um, like, can see, I stop you right there and yeah. ask you how many times you've seen The Shining? Yeah, uh, like I said, I like, probably like eight times or so before. Yeah, I'm about there. Like, too. I first, saw, I first saw it when I was like twelve, and I've probably watched it maybe every two or three years since then. Like, mm-hmm. um, see, see, I've seen it 
sadly, <laughs> I've seen the film over 40 times. I feel like I'm one of those people in the movie, yeah. not to the extent that they are. And I get called out on my podcast often for overly <laughs> elaborate theories on movies. So maybe part of my initial distaste of the film was a, we smell our own kind yeah. of, <laughs> you see yourself. And I can you totally relate like to that. that. I mean, that's definitely what I, I like about it. So, okay. So just, the effect of noticing all of these things for me where like – which obviously the scene where uh, Jack Torrance is being interviewed um, and like – and there's that guy in the background and there's that guy following him around as they sort of give him and his family a tour. Mm-hmm. Like that they mentioned like they have this weird section of the movie just about this strange man who doesn't have many lines of dialogue. <laughs> like Just walking in the background? In, obviously, I've, yeah, I've seen yeah. this film. Uh, a bunch of times Watson. and he has dialogue clearly I've seen him in the movie but while I was watching the footage this time I was like oh shit that guy is in these scenes like my memory never ever contains that guy yeah. that guy never has ever stuck in my brain I've thought about those initial scenes a lot and it's always just Jack Nicholson and the weird like sort of guy behind the desk Kennedy, Kennedy guy yeah the Kennedy guy exactly like redirecting your cognitive abilities yeah. so so, okay, so there's that. There's Jack Nicholson reading a Playgirl magazine randomly yep, while he's yep. waiting for awesome. someone. There's the Never general. There's the, so, which again, that has to be intentional for what purpose God only knows, but it's very, it's a very odd choice. And it's more, and it seems much more obviously intentional than a lot of the continuity errors and stuff, mm. um, which, you know, could just be, you know, fucking con- like, so that's, again, reading too much into it, they just could be just kind of right. Exactly. Areas. So okay, but absolutely. Can I can I stop you right there? Because there's like three big continuity errors in The Shining. Well, I, we'll get we'll, we'll get that we'll get we'll get okay. to that in a second. But I do want to talk about really, just really quick. The film's very intoxicating. Just seeing all of those things play out and yeah. the geography. I had seen a like a video essay about the geography of The Shining, but that's always sort of interesting for me how just the geography of the Overlook Hotel makes no sense. So that is all just a lot of very enjoyable to watch in on its own. Um, but the thing that really uh, sort of piqued my interest about the film is the very fact that he chooses to never like, cause initially I thought the film was going to be, and this is actually something I might disagree with you a little bit about sort of the way you guys have uh, characterized the film in your, uh, in talking about it is like I thought it was going to be just several people in a row sort of telling their stories and it would just be about how crazy all these people are. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be like kind of funny and whatever. But what he chooses to do instead is to like barely introduce them. Like their little their names show up briefly, but you're never gonna hold on to all those names. A lot of the voices sound similar. So and instead they become this weird Greek chorus. And it's a very purposeful effect that you never see anyone's fit. Like it would not cost him much to just film their fit. Like like to me, that's a very that's a specific choice, and so the film is never about any one, uh, and no section right. of the film is about any one interpretation. And he's not belittling them when they have kind of something outrageous, and it's obviously a subjective interpretation. If you think something is outrageous, some people might think, "Oh, wow, that has a lot of validity right. to it." But so what it ends up being to me is just the idea, like it becomes less about these theories specifically and mm-hmm. more general what these people are doing which is what all people who who view or consume or you know take part in any kind of art do which is they bring a set of experiences to to something and they interact with the art whether or not you know the art is a painting or what and then they walk away with an experience that is unique to them because 
half half of what happened was their experience. True. So, which is so that's all you know very subjective. But what it makes the film really interesting to me is this essential paradox, which is this. Okay, so uh, Jim mentioned postmodern film criticism. So there's this concept called death of the author. It's not. Yeah. It's not that the author, as Jim said, it's not the author that is that the author's intent is half the story. It's that the author's intent means nothing. It's that all that <laughs> all that really all that really means is what's on the screen. What right. when the when the projector starts and when the projector ends. Like the way the- I've heard that phrase is after the uh, – unless you're George Lucas or Ridley Scott who can never leave their shit alone, uh, after you're done with the film, the it's creator becomes anymore. just another viewer. Maybe yes. a slightly more informed viewer. Yes, but, but, in other ways, viewer. but in other ways, I mean as someone who's a big fan of Woody Allen, like in other ways, a lot of – sometimes they're a less informed viewer. In a lot of ways, the subjectivity of a director means they know – like Woody Allen thinks Manhattan is his worst movie because he has – because he has a subjective view of it. He can't look at it objectively. He's un- incapable. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, hmm. so, uh, so anyway, so there's this idea of death of the author, which inherently means that every single person's theory means holds a little more water because it's no longer about whether or not they can prove Kubrick intended this. It's whether or not they can prove that's how the film operates. And when you look at it from like it, this is how The Shining works as an art. Like, you know, like our next person we're going to cover is David Lynch and something like Mulholland Drive. You could put a lot of theories based on, you know, symbolism and stuff like that as to what the film's about. But the best interpretation is always just going to be the one that jives the most with how the film functions as a, as a film. So in that way, the moon landing guy, not so much because he, uh, you know, uh, and and maybe you know his theory isn't shown in given its full day in court in this film, but to me that's irrelevant because it's not about the guy he his individual theory. It's just about in general. We see people who are making wild interpretations, like a skier in a poster in a background looks like a minotaur, like and we have seen people like to me the uh, Native American genocide thing yeah, is actually that seems to hold that, a lot of weight to that, me. That's like whether or not Kubrick meant it is irrelevant. And he's actually I think he's the one who actually says that directly in the mm-hmm. film um like that to me you can read the shining as about as sort of an allegory for the native american and it does sort of make you look at it differently and it does sort of and there's a lot in the film and so that's that to me is a theory that holds a lot of weight not yeah. necessarily a theory uh that that's what Kubrick intended but a theory that that's how The Shining operates, and you know? it sort of delves into, like, the film's concept, possibly, of, so, like, the past okay. and being buried. In- exactly. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of, the, like, they literally reference it's on an Indian burial ground, right. and there's just tons of Native the Americans. Most, the most amusing thing, though, is that when Stephen King wrote the book, he wrote it as a way of dealing with alcoholism, which is not even... Approach, yeah, exactly. In hmm. the film, so I mean, and that's actually <laughs> why it's approaching the Simpsons parody. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually why I think uh, films are actually really interesting examples of approaching art as death of the author because films, in particular, have so many authors. And in yeah. one way, in some way, like what we do on this podcast is sort of auteur theory, but in another way, like auteur theory only carries you so far before you realize. That those credits go on for yeah. ten minutes after the movie because there's really two hundred authors who yeah, all like to no read. Shit. So and when when the ski poster is put up um, in the in the lounge or the games room, mm. it's because the prop people were not talking to the script people, and something as trivial as that, the continuity editor either missed or didn't care. Yeah, and, you know. Mm. Okay, so that's one thing. 
So th- that fact means all of their theories now hold more weight because it's no longer about – I mean other than say the moon landing because the guy who thinks that it's – they his assertion is not that it's about the moon landing being fake. It's that it's his confession. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that one's that's a little a less – That's a way better way to And that it. to me yeah. is a, uh, kind of on the farther range of credibility. But you you have this wide range of theories that are credible and non-credible. Mm-hmm. Okay, But also the flip side of that – and here's where the paradox comes in. The sole reason people are looking at The Shining this closely and reading it this deeply is because who Stanley Kubrick is, who the author is. And yeah. saying these can't be mistakes. These can't yeah. be arbitrary. He's such a perfectionist. He's Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. He's a perfectionist. He's the a genius. The fallacy of Room 237 is just how much credit all of these people give to Kubrick. Well, yeah, and I wouldn't even say that's, a, that's the fallacy of the film. That's just, to me, this film is about exploring that fallacy. And it creates this really, I mean, and again, I, so I view this movie as being about postmodern film criticism. It's a, it's a piece of postmodern film criticism. And it's yeah, about that's what I like about that. postmodern film criticism. Yeah. And honestly, again, uh, you know, the funny thing is, and my favorite line in the whole movie is the guy who's even hit, the one whose theory I think holds the most water. He says something ludicrous, which is that he couldn't tell why no one else noticed that the Calumet cans in the background meant represented <laughs> the broken promise oh, to the Native God. Americans. And he's and he goes <laughs> and the next thing he says is the next thing he says is. But I knew that because I grew up near the Calumet River. So I knew what Calumet means like. <laughs> To, that's like just a perfect encapsulation of yeah. I bring this to the subjectivity yeah, of it, and yeah. but that's what everyone does. Oh, of I course, mean, you can't you can't separate it. And to me, uh, you know, parts of it there's like there's a couple shots, there's a couple of movies he uh, that he takes clips from that are kind of dumb. Like there's a genie or something, or like some mm-hmm. maybe appropriately enough for today, some Harryhausen movie or something. Yeah, uh, or something like, like some of the clips are dumb. But one of the things I really like about uh, him including shots from demons too is uh is that like in a way it's is this like after everything you see about the shining and uh that you learn about the shining uh, or at least that i learned maybe people who watched it a billion times and who are more astute would notice a lot more of the continuity errors and the weird things kubrick does that sort of that i like if you wanted my personal theory i think what kubrick's game actually was was just to play on the subconscious by fucking around with stuff yeah, and I can see that. Some totally. of the, some of those errors were uh, pro- Brian De Palma's Femme Fatale is insane. Yeah, that's that, that's possible. <laughs> but I also but Shining is also captivating on its own, and Femme Fatale I did not find captivating on its own. Disagree, but, but we'll move yeah, on. yeah, exactly. Um, but so that's what I personally think. But. Um, like oh, you mean things like the typewriter changing color? Like, yeah, yeah, like that. He would need two typewriters. Yeah, of course. You know, so like stuff like that, or you know, just the geometry of the Overlook, or stuff like that. Like, but then there's Scorsese. Now it, it works in Shutter Island, where Scorsese actually uses his filmmaking approach to augment yeah. the disorientation in That's Shutter right. Island, which mm-hmm. is kind of a Shining like movie. Um, but all of Scorsese's movies, because he just likes the best take. And he doesn't worry if the glass is yeah. the wrong orientation or not because he's focusing on I want the best performance or I want the mm-hmm. best mood and all the other details are secondary. Probably the, mo- the most guilty film in that is Departed, which is just nonstop continuity errors. That's one of the things I really like about that movie, actually. <laughs> but that movie, like I never noticed continuity errors. That's just not something my brain is sort of tuned to pick up. Like that movie, I was mm-hmm. constantly – <laughs> like, and it, it, it drives some people nuts yeah. in a bad way. This is the first film I've ever 
scene where it drives people nuts in a effective like, way, self fulfilling yeah. good, good way. Like, clearly, these guys take pleasure in their own theories okay. and take pleasure on dwelling in these things. So, but, um, so yeah. we, we sort of went off a tangent, but basically, the inclusion of stuff like demons too is after everything that you learn er, that the average person will learn about The Shining from watching this movie. The conclusion that you do walk away from is this isn't just a B horror movie. This isn't just a movie about uh, a guy who killed... Like, this isn't just a straightforward horror movie. There's some other weird games that Kubrick is playing. Um, And to me, I think that the inclusion of demons is, is like, sort of just, like, teasing that idea of... Mm -hmm. Obviously, you probably don't walk away from this movie thinking it's about Kubrick confession who faked the moon landing. But the flip side of that, the most... The other... the Okay, so the most far-out idea is that the most the most skeptical idea would be, oh, it's not about anything at all. It's just... <laughs> he just tried to make a scary movie. Like... like In that Stanley Kubrick To me, tradition. that also doesn't hold a lot of water. And there's this weird middle ground of exactly at what point is someone uh, bringing too much to a movie? What is that point? And to mm-hmm. me, the, because of the way it combines all of the theories and it, be, it becomes this crazy Greek chorus, like... You are it's sort of disorienting and you don't know what point that is. Yeah, I, I think it was, if you if you can read any art as allegory at all, like if you Great Gatsby's coming out this weekend, like if you read, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald book and you don't read any metaphor at all in it and you and you refuse to and you go, no, no, it's just well, a story about these people doing these things and that's it. Like, well, some people's brains aren't wired that way. Well, no, I, no I'm it. saying, but you're that's that's but that's willfully like missing a lot of. The stuff he does, like yeah, well, yeah. And, and trust me, it works a lot better in novels than it does in films. Mm. I don't necessarily agree. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of it done in films, but a film is such an immediate, visceral thing. Whereas a novel, you process it at a different speed, so you can and you can flip back. Yes, yeah, that's that's, that's you're yeah. in a novel. Whereas I, a movie, even something like The Shining, where the first hour is like really slow, so you can think about stuff if yeah. you want. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, like, it's just rushing at you and you do not – I mean, people like J.J. Abrams, ha- Abrams have entire careers because no one stops to think of what came before and they just keep plunging forward with their movie and they don't care about I happens. Yeah, no, I'll, OK. I'll agree with you there. It, it works – yeah, it works better. I wouldn't say it's much – like, I, I still think there's ways that um, symbolism um, in films, at least for me, is more effective because you can feel it more viscerally than uh, the sort of intellectually in books – <laughs> um, like you see an image that you saw earlier or you see a repeated sort of image in a film, you know, like uh, then that's something that just sort of triggers something in your brain without even thinking about it, without even yeah. realizing it. And yeah. I think in that way, films can uh, can be a little more effective. I, I definitely agree. About- a lot better with a match cut than with like using symbols later. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you have a beautiful just slice from one to the other perfect but i mean films do it stoker yeah. the recent film is rife with that that's the whole film yeah. many people hate the movie because the plot is so mundane or whatever but that's the whole movie is the symbols just swelling yeah like it's this marriage of all these different elements sort of coming together and, there's a, and, there, and, and, and that's what i love about and film there's sound too. as well i mean yeah, we're sound watching, we're, i've been watching a lot of you know david lynch uh, you know, in a preparation for the next pilot, like David Lynch does that a ton. Like oh, in a yeah, race, with just fire. similar sounds and the and images yeah. and in you know stuff like that. Like, uh, like so. Anyway, but 
we are, yeah, we got off on a tangent, but because, <laughs> this, because of this fucking because, movie, because this film is about how we interpret art, like yeah. So for me, that's normal. What's fascinating is it really did make me question, actively question, at what point, exact point, and I don't have an answer. At what exact point are people looking too far into it? Because there's such a, and I, I do believe in death of the author, and I do believe in if a film, if a film supports a reading. Like if if you can read a film as a certain thing, then it doesn't matter. Then it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether or not that's the actual plot or if that's subtext. Like yeah, no, that's a good point. Like when I was reading different theories about the master, like those did not strike me at all when I was watching it. Like that's the thing is, like the the this the room two thirty seven kind of succeeds as like this, you know, testimony of how like a movie experience can lead to these obsessive so. Uh, needs to like parse it together and figure out exactly what's going on beneath the surface so too. okay so uh, the other film we're talking about upstream color and like i said we're probably going to merge the conversation a little for me thematically to to skip way way ahead <laughs> to me <laughs> thematically upstream color is about how people um who people who have just shared histories of abuse and trauma can come together and and sort of piece things together just by sharing sort of those experiences and that history mm-hmm. with each other. And it's just about sort of trauma. And it sort of it has a kind of crazy sci-fi trauma because, uh, you know, the, I mean, the advantage of sci-fi is just uh, it sort of gets you thinking in terms of more abstract. You know, if she if, if the main if the main character in Upstream Color was actually raped, there's a whole lot of context that goes with rape sure. that the film would have to be about. It would have to be inherently about gender. It would have to be inherently about rape culture, whatever. Whereas... If it's just a weird generic trauma that has no societal context, really, um, but it could still, you know, uh, ha- recall images of rape, of being drugged, and, you know, stuff like that, like, that, then it is able to hold power and also... So anyway, for me, it's about people who come from trauma coming together and sort of working through it and and sort of, and, and sort of overcoming it um, in a way, but not entirely conquering it, you know, because it's just, that's just eternally part of your past you'll never get over it but i'm in a relationship where that where that has sort of happened Mm -hmm. and that exact thing has happened and i saw upstream colors shortly after room 237 and to me the film 100 percent works as being about trauma but at what is that really you know like there's a lot of films that i really enjoy like uh, you know um uh uncle boone me who can recall his past lives or oh yeah i could see that that's an interesting i was thinking safe when i was watching this movie safe is it but this one's more warm and inviting safe is kind of cold in color well no reverse that i think i think safe is kind of like this cold movie but i find a lot of emotional resonance in it yeah but i and and okay so safe is a movie i did not enjoy very much. I could kind of respect how it was put together or whatever, but it was just a movie I had no connection to. Hmm. Can I say it's a bad movie because I didn't bring that to it? Or, like, yeah. <laughs> to me, to me, Room 237 is about acknowledging how much you actually bring to films mm-hmm. and how much, as much as you want to be... I mean, and again, this is a total person who is into film criticism and into art criticism and into thinking about film... This is the kind of thing that that kind of person, a.k.a. me, will walk away from Room 237 with. <laughs> but I think it is 
supported, like by the way the film is put together and by the very purposeful choice of merging all of the theories and voices together. Like, Yeah, and when we review a movie, I tend to always say I have a bias yeah. or something along those lines Absolutely. so people are aware of when they hear I, my opinion. I've heard film criticism be reference to um, taking your gut reaction to a movie and intellectualizing it. Yeah, I've in sure. a review. There was so a, there was a really that makes sense. The too. emotional, and then you're filling in the blanks later, which in a way is kind of what all of these people are doing in room 237. And if you'll allow me to jump back to Upstream Color, yeah. I didn't... I, I mean, the whole shared trauma thing like i see that in the movie when you pointed out i clearly see that these people came together as victims and and they have shared memories but for you but for you that's not what the film is about the movie movie is not even close to about that for for me (laughs) upstream color was about the fact that it was very cold and very impersonal and it, it was far more about the fact that humanity puts way too much emphasis on their own self and that they're just one oh. element in in these overarching large cycles and when something comes along and we consider what the earth is now to be or at least what it was pre-industrial to be what earth is supposed to be but earth has been evolving and life has been dealing with it every whatever large cycle larger cycles than we can possibly comprehend which in microcosm in upstream color is this weird organism that causes that weird hypnotic drug sensation and the fact that someone has turned it into a scam to get people out of their savings and the fact that they don't no one knows each other and and even at the end of upstream color when they do kind of catch the the one guy and but then they deal with all the fallout, all the shit that he's caused, the pollution, the pigs, the everything, they don't like erase it. They just absorb it and move on. And well, then to, me, yeah. to me, that is 100%. Reality. That's to, to me what the movie's about that the environmentalist movement is bullshit and we should just wreck the earth and move on. <laughs> to, um, me, that, to me, to me, not, not erasing things, but absorbing them and dealing with that is 100% what dealing with trauma is about. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Okay, I, I so, love so, the fact that... So, we you, have, we're, not on, we're not on upstream color yet, but this, to me, is a <laughs> perfect <laughs> example of... Upstream color is a film I had an intense emotional reaction to, and I've heard the same description. There's actually a really interesting article about Room 237 where it was a filmmaker uh, who sort of... Talked. It was sort of a roundtable, a filmmaker and a bunch of film critics uh, that oh. were his friends. And it was him sort of talking about how Room 237 infuriated him because he gets so frustrated by the audience sort of imposing themselves uh, on his work or imposing implied what he – imposing what they think he means uh, on, into his work. Wow. So anyway, that's, it's that a seems, really interesting That seems article. like a unique perspective. I, like, You're in guys, the wrong business, pal. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and no, and he sort of – he sort of – and through this roundtable that he sort of gets a more refined sort of understanding of what that even intention is. And, and it's not, and it's not as strong, like not infuriating is probably me putting it stronger than I should. But, um, but yeah, one person said that, uh, film criticism or, and which obviously could apply to art criticism in general, that any art criticism that isn't based on just historical fact and that sort of thing, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's taking a subjective experience and then creating the illusion that you can speak about it objectively. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, and, no, but there's a lot of film critics that 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 deny that. I mean, actually, that's one mm-hmm. of the probably the most 
the, the, the largest contribution of Pauline Kael, despite oh, yeah. all of her writing and whatever, is making unabashedly her reviews about a personal reaction. That's probably why I film. like her so much. <laughs> But she still, but her still, her, but her wording and the way she phrases things and the way she presents these ideas are still presented uh, in the context of the film. In, no, in the in a context of objectivity. Oh, okay. They're still presented. I don't think so. She, I think that's your fault, Patrick. No. <laughs> I think that, that that if you're reading that as objective, like I have loads of people that get really angry at reviews that I've written or positions that I've taken things or whatever, and I'm like, I'm flattered that you put that much weight in my opinion, but my opinion is my opinion, and I'm putting it out there for whatever because we like to put it out there. Sure. But I am not an authority on anything. Like, so the fact that you're if you think if you think that my authority on something is not my problem, if you think that Pauline Kale did not think of herself as an authority on anything, then I would just have to say I completely hundred percent disagree. No, I, 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 well, I, I would completely hundred percent disagree. I know she talks like that and whatever, but it's her. I, I would, I would argue that she is not going to condescend her audience of of putting a. Hmm. Uh, like a whatever a disclaimer, yeah, or or starting every single sentence with "I think" or "In my opinion," right? right no, right, absolutely right. does that. I mean, absolutely, but at, but at the same time, her tone is not, uh, and not to turn this into a conversation about Pauline Kael even, <laughs> but uh, and not because this whole thing is based on something that I said a film critic said in an article about Room Two Thirty Seven, so. It just keeps no, going and going and is, going. Would not you rather read an opinion, watch a film or whatever about someone who projects authority, but you have to acknowledge that they don't have authority, but the fact that they're going for it is what makes it compelling. Like that's the whole all in, like do what you love, et cetera. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's the difference so, between someone like Pauline Kael and someone like Harry Knowles. Like – well, I mean, not, that's not the difference. There's obviously a shit ton of differences <laughs> between Pauline Kael and Peter Travers. I mean, that would be. <laughs> I don't. I don't read Peter Travers, so I'm not familiar with his work. But um, no, you don't need to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but uh, my point. My point is that whole projection of objectivity is something that can be a little misleading. Um, that whole projection of authority. That whole projection of this is. The film. This is the film. I watched the film. Let me tell you what the film is. Hmm. As opposed, like sometimes Roger Ebert will go into these are all the feelings I had during the movie, and honestly, and then sometimes, and then sometimes he'll just be like, "This is what the film is," and and to me, the right balance is a balance between those. I don't want to hear Harry Knowles talk about how excited he got because he remembered when he was little and watched Godzilla, and now finally there's an American version of Godzilla with all these special effects and all this money. Like, I don't want to hear about that. That, to me, is useless. Um, like, to me... Uh, okay, so here's actually... If you, want to, if you want to talk about podcasting or whatever. Here's something that uh, that is something that you know I struggle with, and that is, if we just say how we felt about any given movie, there can be no discussion because I can't tell Jim that he didn't think some, like that he didn't find somewhere meaningful. (laughs) You know what I mean? I can't tell him he didn't feel what he felt. And if his only position is, this is what I felt, then that's not really, that's not really discussing the art. That's just discussing himself. So if you want to discuss art, you have to put your subjective feeling into objective terms. You have to say somewhere made me feel this because this is what somewhere does. Somewhere sets up 
a, a portrait of depression somewhere uncompromisingly paces a film out so you feel that ennui yeah. somewhere uncompromisingly does not impose a plot str- and these are all I don't these aren't things I think uh, I think those are all horrible. things I think yes exactly <laughs> but these are the the, uh, the Sofia Coppola movie <laughs> yes yes so <laughs> so so okay so but these are the people who do find meaning in that film these are the things they can point to and say this is what she does and that's to me is the more interesting but but the line there is no hard line between this is what she does mm-hmm. and this is how I feel and I think that people project a lot um of that that line does exist and that they know where that is and I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think people could I mean you can talk about uh you know something that's very charged politically like say a rape scene in a movie. One person can look at I spit on your grave and say that's uncompromisingly brutal. It just shows the violence of the act and it's horrible. And one person can say, "Oh my god, it's so exploitative and disgusting. I can't believe the whole reason that goes on so long is because they're clearly getting off on it. Yeah. Like, you could just look at the way it's directed and the way it's edited, and you're still coming from it from a subjective point oh, of sure. view. But uh, but if you abandon all objectivity and you abandon all objective speech, then that to me is all – like, that's useless as well. You can't, you can't pretend that you're 100% objective, <laughs> but you also – There's a curious – Weird subjective middle. There's very few yeah. films like this. Maybe The Shining's one of them. Maybe maybe that's part of the the attraction that you get when you're watching it, and that these people are. Uh, but I, I call it the Jesus Camp effect, where the the people in Jesus Camp watched the movie and said, "Yep, that's a fair representation mm. of who we are." And then the movie was launched into the rest of the world, and the rest of the world were like, "Wow!" and had such a that's a completely re- different reaction. That's to the a really to the point where the camp got shut down, and and then they're like, "Well, maybe we don't like that representation of us in the movie anymore because they realize, you know, people are seeing it in such a vastly different way." That's a really yeah. that's a really fascinating uh, um, example. That's a really good example. I agree. There's very few films that do that, yeah. but I love it when I hit one. I, like <laughs> something I, to a lesser. People see the same film and feel the exact opposite. Oh yeah. Way. Well, I mean, to a lesser extent, a lot of films about that try to be about violence or a lot of films that are satirical do that. Like, uh, like fight club is clearly a film that has a split audience of people mm-hmm. who see fight club as, as sort of condemning something. And then others condoning something. Something like starship troopers, people see, yep. uh, you know, kill sat- yeah. satire is often satire. Yeah, is misinterpreted. Satire. But Jesus camp is kind of maybe a little more interesting example because mm. it's just based on ethos and beliefs and not based <laughs> on, uh, the sort of formal approach but but on that note, I, again, when I, I if I just close my eyes and listen to the score of Jesus Camp, I hear horror movie. Like, I, and and I and I imagine that the people that saw the film and were totally fine with it, they just didn't process the music, oh, or they just like, yeah. you know whatever. But when I hear it, I'm like the filmmakers based on those musical choices. I'm again, I'm putting words into their mouth are clearly horrified because they're using almost a cliche horror movie soundtrack for the film. So, so it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's about embracing that hyper awareness too. I think that's, what's great about room 237 is that all those details you'd never really pick up on. And that, and that's, and that's the other thing. It's not telling people. And the other thing I was a little afraid of about it is because I hate the idea of people the the common phrase is and again this might be like my there's no such thing as so good it's bad where I'm more opposed mm-hmm. to the phrase than to the idea 
Um, because, but I'm, I hate when people say you're overthinking things. What they really mean is your interpretation is not supported by the film. But to say, and you've like, said that before, sure. That's and that's and you can't just overthink something. You can just misread a film, and you can just say, "Oh, well, it's about this because these, you know, this combined, uh, this combined five minutes of film." Has all the answers in it, but it's like, yeah. well, what about all those other scenes? Like, well, th- th- and that's the conspiracy theory kind of angle. The idea that we are pattern recognition yes. machines, which is why so many people spot UFOs or things in clouds. I think there's a, a scene in Room Two Thirty Seven where one guy is asserting that if you pause it for just the right frame, you will see Stanley Kubrick's face in the clouds of the helicopter shot. Okay. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, even, and even when the film recognition, d- even when then, the even when the film does pause it, I could not see. It. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like um, and then they show the same shot later, and clearly there's been some contrast enhancement or something going on because the shot doesn't even look the same, even though because yeah. he says right when Kubrick's name goes off. Well, they show that scene many times, so you can watch it later, and you know the way they've zoomed it or or played with the image. It, it, but but what I'm saying is is that. Um, human beings have this uncanny ability it's it's what makes science real science properly done science great in that you're trying to not see the world through rose-colored glasses that's, yeah, or, that's yeah, what yeah. these scientific looking is. at something and human the one thing that people are really not built to do is to objectively look at things emotions drive us or oh, whatever it's really hard to 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 not you know, to not say, I see this in this six minutes, so I'm going to ignore the five other things later in the movie, which are utterly contradictory to right. my theory. I'm just going to I'm just going to partition that and just ignore it away. I'm going to that's what people do. So people get stubborn. And, and to me, and to me, that's what makes this that's what makes room 237 really interesting is to me. Like these are all interesting things about the way people watch movies, and you can have this conversation in relation to Room Two Thirty Seven. But I also think Room Two Thirty Seven, just in its approach and just in the wide range of theory, like some of those theories aren't included because they're super interesting. Some of those theories are just included because they sort of balance the other ones, and they're just sort of like some are so based in numbers, mm-hmm. and some are so based in images. And one one person, like I can't even remember who it is, but one person admits that, like he realized, like he quote unquote realized that all the footage from World War II is fake, and like, like yeah. there's a whole range of the way people approach. And to me, Room Two Thirty Seven, that's, that's him. That's actually that scene uh-huh. is supposed because that's Widener, and that scene is supposed setting up the idea that we did land on the moon. They just did not want to issue the actual. Footage. Footage shot from the moon. So yeah. like in the war, they made their own footage <laughs> in order to mm. be more processable, iconic, media-friendly, yeah. whatever phrase you want. Exactly. So to me, like um, this film is actively about subjectivity and objectivity and how we read movies and how we read art and and exploring the idea that those lines are not so clear – and to me, which is which is a little bit why I get a little disappointed when people say it's about overthinking, because it's not about overthinking; it's about how we think in general. Okay, yeah. and it's not necessarily saying it's over. It's it's about it's a it's just about the various ways that we approach things mm-hmm. from odd angles. Um, because again, like some of their theory, I do think you can watch The Shining, and it's not, it, and it makes you think about The Shining differently. 
Um, it's not necessarily to me the way to watch The Shining, but like the, the Native American genocide theory is sort of interesting and it sort of holds weight and it yeah. sort of makes you look the film a different way. Like made me want to rewatch The Shining too. Yeah, exactly. the, well, the big yeah. one, the big one that they did not include, and I have no idea why they didn't include because it is a wonderful. Very well developed theory, uh, and it's it's as fun to read. I find these things. I understand what you're saying that the film casts a spell, the same spell that these people are under by giving a cacophony of their voices all over, you know, cut yes. together. But when you can read their theories and process them bullet point by bullet point, I take even more pleasure out of the actual theorizing, like one at a time. And the one that they left out of the film is that. Um, the Shining is Kubrick or whatever lamenting, commenting, uh, riffing on the fact that the United States left the gold standard for fiat currency. And it is a wonderful <laughs> wow. essay. And it, it, and it just the way – because it's uh, the guy, the guy <laughs> who – the president of the United States who – I don't know what, what what year it was that that the, that the U.S. left the gold standard and and the U.S. dollar became kind of the standard. Um, that president is in that photo. That archival photo in the final shot of The Shining is a real photo, and he's in it. I, I can't remember which president it was at the time. Yeah. So so, um, so I, I mean, kind of awesome. I, and yeah, and you may. And again, I don't really believe on this is another thing about sort of documentaries and i wasn't on this episode but i believe this may have been discussed a little bit uh, on another bonus episode that uh you guys had with uh, jay cheel about sort of like to me accurately representing these people's theories or yeah it's besides or, like the point. that yeah that to me is besides the point and i do think that it would have lost something and it would have probably felt more didactic if they just one by one like piece by piece really thoroughly explain all these theories um again again most of these guys have made their own films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, there, are, there are dozens of films. But I, yeah, so I think and, – and also I do think, Kurt, just the fact that you knew about a lot of these and that you're in, already interested in a lot of these and you probably watch The Shining a lot more than most people. Like I think you are probably looking at it differently than – approaching the film differently than I could have ever approached it. Um, and you pro- So you probably didn't get that sort of intoxicating effect I did. No, and that's uh, what I, I was a little bit on the outside. Yeah. Uh, because again, I'm like, oh, they, they missed that. Or you know what I mean? Like, it's like when you read a book, um, which is weird because I don't know too many people that went and saw Room 237 that didn't see The Shining. That seems just yeah. a weird thing to do. Even though Patrick is clearly saying that that's a perfectly valid thing to do because the movie's not about The Shining. I'm not necessarily. The Shining I mean, is just the textbook I, I'm example. Not, I'm, not, I'm, using. I wouldn't, I'm not necessarily saying that. Whether or not it's about The Shining, which I don't think it is. The context of having seen The Shining and then all those aha moments, I don't think any of those would play. Like, being told that the, that a hotel in a movie you've never seen layout makes no sense has no... I, I do think you need to have seen The Shining, but you are right that I don't think it is about The Shining. It sort of correlates, too, very interestingly, because when I watched Eyes Wide Shut last year, I started reading up... Like I other people could have there. a whole room two. Well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, that's exactly I what right I'd love to see. I saw room two thirty seven. I'm like, I can't wait for the eyes wide shut sequel. Yeah, <laughs> no shit. Because there's like all these like uh, sort of indications that it was another sort of confessionary about the Illuminati or something crazy like that. And it, like just you know that the reading about that alone was like, oh yeah. I mean, there's there's like little hints and clues there, but. Are, are, am I just like, you know, 
not necessarily blind when I'm watching it beforehand, but like reading that sort of reinforces it a little bit. There's also is, a kind of bias that once you are told a bunch of things, yeah, that yeah, that's what I'm saying. That you've right. never noticed, you might put more weight on them than sure. when you go back and watch it and you actually realize that all of those things that they told you that you never noticed that suddenly seem so significant actually make up a small part of the movie. Yeah, or you well, like? I, I believe that phrase is called priming. Uh, Jim would probably know more than me, right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, that, that's true. I can see that someone, and then they see it. I, it's mm-hmm. just, but the 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 eyes wide shut thing is fascinating because that the the MK Ultra, like that that eyes wide shut is like a you know whatever a metaphor for the CIA's MK Ultra program mm-hmm. is is that's another one of the great. There's something about the way Kubrick makes films. It's his it's his stark. Somewhat aloof, somewhat esoteric, somewhat purely visual filmmaking, like pulling back on exposition and just yeah. letting the film play. And, and it's kind of vague and open. Like a filmmaker is lucky if they have – I mean David Lynch is an exception. But a filmmaker is lucky if they have a film like Upstream Color that is esoteric enough to, to inspire this sort of thing. But Kubrick's got three of them. Mm-hmm. 2001, The Shining – and eyes wide shut and in a lot of his other films there are elements of these things as well i mean obviously in in clockwork orange there's tons of it too but but these those three films um are the most pure visual storytelling that kubrick has ever done and and he just never talks down to the audience with those films that's what makes people immediately write them off 2001 was not the most well received film when it came out, um, but it was the most well received of that that trio of films. The Shining was very ill received, and Eyes Wide Shut was very very ill received. And, and often yeah. still, but often they're still. all beloved now, and that's yeah. the and and I find science fiction movies in general tend to have that thing because people just don't get what the f- film is showing you because they just can't. Like they, they don't even have the language in their brains to, to yeah. start to process it yet. But then over time, other films are made or whatever, and then you know, and then people's syntax or lexicon or whatever the vocabulary, whatever the phrase is, can make them watch it better. And and I think that's why Kubrick is the best filmmaker that's ever lived because he he was doing that from a very early period of his career all the way to the end. And even when he adapts a Stephen fucking King novel, he makes <laughs> it, it becomes this window into, you know, our, our subconscious souls when we watch it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Oh, also I should say real quick, as far as disclosure. And also this is kind of more amusing stuff as far as what you bring to a film. Um, I've actually, and this is, this could actually be why I put so much weight on the way that the voices are sort of arranged together. Um, in terms of how, like, to me, that is sort of the Rosetta Stone for how I read Room 237, which is hmm. the fact that you can't tell who's, like, you can only barely vaguely tell who's speaking at any given time. And uh, I actually wrote a uh, a treatment, and I couldn't, I never wrote a script because it was just out of my depth. I wasn't a good enough, I'm not a good enough writer. Um, but I wrote a, but I was listening to a lot of um, conspiracy theory podcasts at one point. And then I was Ooh. listening to a lot of skeptic podcasts and they both speak the exact same way. And they're both, uh, I mean, obviously they, they, there's different sort of 
ways that people convince themselves something is true and there's different sort of ways that people get a lot of joy out of disproving things like i i never knew there was a skeptic community but apparently that's like there's, <laughs> there's this the, the, the community has a magazine like yeah. there, there's, there's there's conferences there's magazines yeah. there's there's like weekly meetup like pub meetups and everything so like where people just talk about shit that they don't think is true like shit they don't believe in is they're defining it's the other is, side of the coin in fact there's a documentary that premiered at hot dogs just uh last week called the unbelievable which is it's Richard Dawkins and Larry can't remember his last name the physicist uh, that have, you know that that's what they do they go in, and it, it's so browbeating on religion in the movie that you you get, you do get the sense that some of the processes even though I happen to agree with them some of the processes and things that they're doing are the the, the same problems that religious people tend to do <laughs> right it's just this sort of uh, closed-minded uh, yeah sort of approach it's, it's so anyway everything how, how can an open-minded person be closed-minded but there is an element to it mm-hmm. and uh it's I'm, I'm i mean i i clearly side with these guys but i'm i would be blind if i did not see some of the uglier elements which i associate with intolerance and and their argument is well Maybe this is not their argument, but I, I get the, the the gist of the fact that if someone is bringing this to the table, they're worthy of derision. It's my moral duty yeah, yeah. to be derisive. <laughs> but you're like, but dude, you're still being derisive. So anyway, I found both, both groups very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I and I began to think of the uh, this idea of – and it would have to be, I guess, experimental in some way because it was a non-narrative film. But it was basically – and it would probably end up have been a short film, but it was basically – um, just the millions of ways that people discuss uh, theories and ideas, and it would just be edited together so you never hear one theory completely, but it would be like two guys in a bar arguing about whether the moon landing is fake, and then it would be someone on a on like a weird freeform radio show or like a college radio station talking about you know about how ni- how you know 11 truthers and then it would be yeah. about two kids and at recess talking about rumors about uh, why a teacher no longer went to school. Like, it would just be a million things, and it would all sort of turn into this, you know, it, it would just turn into a chorus of voices, which would be an examination of of how people's brains sort of uh, sort of fill in the gaps and what they bring to that. And that is essentially what Room 237 yeah. is, obviously in a different approach, in a different sort of context, a different theme, but like... Uh, so like I was, so the, when I saw this movie, I had that feeling of like, oh, they got there first. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, so I already had developed an affection yeah. for the material before I knew that this was the material <laughs> I had an affection for. So that might be another reason why for me, it's my favorite movie of the year. But I also just think. I can see that. It's I also, mean, for me, it's just the movie that made me think the most. And it's the movie that made me question myself the most. And again, mm-hmm. fucking Film, like I'm not, I don't call myself a film critic, but I am someone who is a cinephile who discusses films critically sure. <laughs> on a podcast or whatever. So, yeah, I'm going to be the guy who likes this movie a lot. It's funny when you were mentioning like finding the middle ground and like not to get even more meta about commenting on our podcast, but it's just like I remember we got like an email uh, a while back about oh, Jim really responds to movies on an emotional level, and Patrick looks at it as art, like, yeah. you know, looks at... Fi- and I think we sort of strive to find that middle ground. Well, I think we both strive Well, to yeah, find I mean, that. it's not it's not a black and white thing. And, you know, yeah. we sort of look for the gray, uh, you know, sort of approach when we watch a film, but sometimes our biases can get in the way yeah, of well, that. Yeah, well, we definitely... I, think, I, I would definitely say that we each tend towards that. I, I, yeah. think, I think the podcast you are... The email you are for referencing... Maybe put it a little more in strict black and white terms sure. than what we have. But yeah, I definitely agree with that approach. And yeah, to me, 
because I have a podcast and because I want the podcast to keep getting better and I want to keep keep betting, getting better at doing podcasts. These are things like the things that are explored in Room 237 are things that I actively think about all the time. Sure. So, uh, you know, this is why, like, for me, it's just one of the most amazing movies. But on top of that, it's also just really fun to watch. Yeah. It's I completely really agree. entertaining. I was and, never bored. Yeah. And, and that's part of the reason why some people take a reaction to Room 237 that, that they're that the filmmaker is in a way mocking them or at least letting them hang themselves with their own rope. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is a, that, that, I think there's sort of an Errol, it's like an Errol Morris kind of thing. That there's some of that impulse. It's, it's kind of an, it's kind of an Errol Morris. Yeah. That's a good point. In fact, there are, there is a, there is a large segment of Errol Morris haters, particularly gates of heaven and tabloid, uh, to where you, you, you can almost sense, the derision. <laughs> I, I, am, the I actually we had that we had discussion in the Earl Morris episode. That's how I feel about Vernon, Florida. I felt Vernon, mm, Florida right. was way too na- like way too derisive and just even though that that's Vernon, Florida is only half a movie, right? right. Yeah. It's not really at all the movie he wanted to make. But you yeah. felt he was mocking. Absolutely, so he's kind of like I don't know. I, absolutely. And, yeah, and Jay and you know, he was just passive aggressively and taking Jay, it out on the town. Yeah, but. and Jay Cheel. Yeah, Jay Cheel thought the exact opposite. Jay Jay Cheel thought that he was really sort of in awe of this sort of uh, small town kind of philosophy, and he found it very interesting. And so, I mean. Again, we, we, you know, we, we just uh, – that necessarily isn't our- – I, I, do, I do think this is accurate. It's inside Room 237. I don't remember who says it, whether it's the Jeffrey Cox guy or the Jay Widener guy. But he says that when you it, – it's kind of like the, 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 the Schrodinger physics thought experiment. The more you try to observe something, the more you're actually creating an effect <laughs> – yeah, that oh. loops into yourself, and and that's kind of how the George Norrie set of the population works, right? You, I think that's the Heisenberg know, principle. The idea right? is to yeah. whip yourself up into a frenzy by poking at yourself. Yeah, it's a movie about observing, and that's one thing I love about life. So, <laughs> speaking of observing, if you I think see we, a word long enough, it loses all meaning, and if yeah. you stare at a wall long enough, you start to see things. So I think. I, so what I'm saying is, Room Two Thirty Seven is really about how Stanley Kubrick made the film uh, as a way of beckoning in Pontypool. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and, and you could argue that that, that the... Um, uh, Ponty... I mean, to me, Room 237 is the Da Vinci Code. Like, yeah. everything shitty about the Dan Brown and the literal uh. sense of the Dan Brown book and the, and the um, Ron Howard movie, like, fuck, they deserve each other. But <laughs> is... is is totally like everything that you get about the obsession with all of the things that lured people in and made, I assume made the Dan Brown novel, a bestseller is what these guys are doing in room Two Thirty Seven. It's a much yeah. more truthful adaptation of the core ideas in the Dan Brown novel. Speaking Only which, in the movie, like the, the characters about, go, look at this. Yeah, speaking, speaking of which, how about we try to uh, talk about what we think the core ideas of Upstream Color are? Um, oh, yeah. Now, Upstream Color is a film that I, I know I've seen twice. Um, I need to see it again. I, there's a lot I don't understand just on a narrative sense mm-hmm. um, that uh, it's harder for me to put together. But it, I will say for sure, um, if you get a chance, watch it twice. Um, just watching the first like fi- like the first fifteen minutes are put together in sort of the most disorienting possible way, where you don't know what anyone's relation to anyone is or what's happening. 
Um, it feels like three distinct chapters in a way. The yes, way the movie's absolutely. Broken it's, up. it's definitely feels segmented. Like, um, let, let's go ahead, Jim. Uh, how'd you feel about Upstream Color? Oh my god! I'm gonna leave Kurt for last. <laughs> on, I'm gonna leave Kurt for last on this one because I think yeah. he probably has the most to say on Upstream Color. But Jim, I felt like this was kind of like this really elegant, inviting trance of a movie. The way it, like the editing, just kind of like it, it's so rhythmic. And I mean that complements the music very well too at times. I mean it's it's kind of like an ambient score, but like I felt like there were moments where the the music and he actually composed the music while writing the script, which is kind of just ultra rare approach. Which is you know like sitting by uh, his computer was a keyboard, you know, and just sort of like trying to uh, integrate. When oh, you have together. so much creative control, you yeah. have that luxury. Oh sure, but I think it's kind of this really sort of. And I love the fact that you were viewing it on this sort of micro level approach. And I was, you know, I I have that tendency too. But like, I thought it was a very theological film. And it's kind of like about the fluidity of identity and the mystery behind free will. And it, like, that's what I was, I was really approaching it from an existential point of view as things went on because I was thinking about like, well, what, what creates us, what controls us? You know, is it a parasite or is it each other? Is do we form like this codependence together that sort of allows us to thrive? And like that's what the love story element really spoke to me about because I've felt that way at times uh, about certain relationships. But I those sinking up scenes, yeah, God, yeah, <laughs> like, that's one of my favorite things I've seen in a long time. But I don't know if you guys are familiar, and I have no idea if he sort of subconsciously picked this up. And for the parasite element of the film, but there's this thing called uh, toxoplasmosis, which is this crazy parasite that creates an enzyme that actually creates behavioral changes by altering the production of dopamine in the brain to where it's actually uh, creating schizophrenia for people. It is found in cat poop. I've heard this. I've heard yeah. about this. I'm I sure, think it was on a radio I'm, lab episode I'm at sure one point. I'm sure Shane Carruth has heard about this at very least. Yeah, because for and, and oddly enough, some of the research like indicates that some women like get put under a spell, like almost like a mind bending kind of spell from this particular parasite, which is just interesting. That I was thinking of that while watching the movie too. But it's very abstract, and it's kind of like this romantic movie that's also kind of harrowing in some ways because of what they go through traumatically. And that's kind of like, I love just sort of the juxtaposition of all these things and the three chapters seem to just mesh so effortlessly in that same way. I almost, I mean, it's a very different movie than Primer, but I still felt like, God, this guy is so assured in his vision that I can't help but be swept up in it. Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I I want to talk a little less about what I think it's about because even in, even in seeing this film twice, and having an emotional response to it because of this is how I connected to it and how I viewed the film. Like, there's a lot about the story that just doesn't sync up. Like, there's a lot that, about the film that is not that doesn't support my reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a complete reading. I don't have a complete reading of the narrative. I don't understand what the connection. I don't understand how the thief and the sampler, the sampler are right, related yeah. to each other. I don't know if they know each other. Or I don't think they, just, they do. I don't here, think they do. Here's the fascinating thing. If, if you'll let me interrupt you, so one of my one of one of the well, he he used to write for Row Three. He still hangs around. I I, I he's local in Toronto, um, and we both love Upstream Color. And he is was absolutely convinced um, that the sampler and the thief 
were fully connected because when the sampler extracts hmm. the tapeworm out of her in his in his little metavan or whatever, um, that he gives her a glass of water or something filled with a little tiny blue line, which is what the thief has been doing over the thing. But Shane Carruth in many – one of his many podcasts if, – if you talk to Carruth long enough, he'll start to talk about movies. So if if someone doing a Q&A with him can just keep him talking – it's a, this is another Errol Morris trick. Just keep him talking. Uh, they'll eventually talk about it even though they're re- reticent to talk about it initially. Yeah, that's and the Q&A Carruth podcast. Is very, very clear um, in some Q&A that I was listening to somewhere that those two characters are utterly unconnected totally unaware but then you can't explain well why why would that visual motif be there maybe it's a mistake i mean this is now we're back into room 237 territory um, and also we're into death of the author territory how much yeah. <laughs> how much should but, so he has this long theory that it's all like and he and then my buddy thinks he sees he saw what it, when they're signing the bank contracts uh, mm-hmm. For her signing over her line of credit money, uh, over he thinks he sees the actor in the shot. I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't see either of those things. So, but so anyway, again, until you have a, like, this is when you've crossed the line. You were asking earlier of when you crossed the 237 line. When you're obsessively going through the film frame by frame, you've crossed the line. I don't know, but uh, there's a lot of things that people have gotten like. I, I, I'll get. Oh, we'll get back. We can get back to that. But here, here's my bigger point. My bigger point is, even though I'm not 100% confident on my reading of the film, and even though I'm not even 100% confident on the events of the film, I um, would agree. Here, here is what to me makes the film different than, say, another highly subjective, highly mm. debated film that came out last year, The Master, which is to me, it is extremely effective in what it does narratively from scene to scene and how it tells its story in just, I don't know why he puts those speakers with the low bass sound on the ground, but I know that though that sound playing as he, as the sampler does the surgery on her and the pig is creepy as hell and very effective. Oh, of course. I don't, I don't know exactly why she is writing Walden and, or, and on chain links and why that has to be then thrown out. But I do know that the fact that she was stacking everything up, uh, then that that motif plays later, that's effective. That, mm-hmm. that to me, is an effective, non-exposi- non-expositional way of sort of showing the effects. Like the guy, while he's waiting at the bar for her before they actually start dating, and he's just absentmindedly piling sort of mints on the... On yeah. the bar and stuff like that. Like this is like the anti-inception. These are, these are things that, whether or not you have a thematic interpretation of upstream color, these are things. This, these are examples of how Shane Carruth is such an amazing storyteller. Sure, that he can tell something so vicious, especially after Primer is the most expositional movie. Yeah. yeah, I saw I saw Upstream Color and Primer and a double feature at the Music Box, and there it's introduced by Shane Carruth. And, and here's said, how we do this. Here's how we do that. And, then and this. here's how here's yeah. uh, here's how like he said it. He thought Primer was about how power dynamic changes with trust. Um, yes. That's what that to him. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah that to yeah. him is what the film is about. And I, I understand that's part of the film, but to me. Every, the way everyone actually watches the film is it's about the exposition and it's about the timelines yeah. and it's about the way See, that he, the way the when Shane Carruth only had one film and and maybe it extends quite nicely to Upstream Color is that I always said that most films the literal plot elements are fairly straightforward and the the thematic elements 
people just don't care or they are unwilling to dig. Whereas with Carruth's films, I find the thematic elements are the straightforward elements. And yeah. The plots yeah. are often, <laughs> you have to dig to understand. Yeah, they're a little complicated. So, so, do that. so anyway, Primer probably outside of, and more enjoyably than of Inception, like the most... Yeah. Expositionally, and I love Inception. I like obsession. I like in obsession. I like Inception. I like obsession a lot. That's why I like Room Two Thirty Seven. But I like Inception a lot. But yeah, the 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 exposition is not nearly as uh, interesting to me as some Mm -hmm. of the stuff in Primer. But after that, to tell a story that is practically a silent, like it almost functions as a silent film. You have a very bare minimum of actual dialogue. I think the whole last 15, like if there's not like one, there's not like one big final line. Dialogue just sort of falls to the wayside. It's like this silent rumination amongst the characters. There's like, there's just little shots. There's little close-ups. Like a lot of these kinds of film filmmakers who try to sort of like, there's a little bit of Malick in, and maybe that's just when there's an impressionistic film with, that features a lot of nature. That's just sort of where someone's mind goes to. Yeah. But, like, a lot of films... There's not that, a lot of voiceover in this one. Right, right. No, exactly. But, like, what I'm, I'm just talking about the, the sort of the visual syntax. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, sort of the sun. And, I mean, especially again, especially sort of the early months when he's going through the garden and um, when, yeah. they're, when they're at the farm. Like, a lot of that, to me, plays like Malik. But a lot of people, they just shoot close-ups of something that's pretty. And they mm-hmm. edit, like... Like the Superman trailer, like that little butterfly on the swing, like that doesn't actually say anything about anything. That's just that's just Zack Snyder not knowing. Like that's just Zack Snyder trying to just think of a pretty image to put in mm-hmm. because that's what Zack Snyder does. He just puts pretty images in place. But like Shane Carruth very much tells a story in these details, and he he asks a lot. Like to me, he is the premier DVD uh, or like home video director. Where his films are almost they're too dense to get in one viewing, but he just accepts that they're 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 that they're yeah. compelling well, enough. He respects his audience. Yeah, well, no, it's not even respect because I don't think he expects them to get it all in the first viewing. Sure, I think it's that he just trusts that they're in compelling enough that even if they people don't know what yeah. everything's going on, they're going to keep watching it again and again, and that they're slowly just going to pick up on more things. So his films are so dense, and then the way he tells stories mm-hmm. in the tiniest details are so fast. Like to me, Primer is almost like a video, like an, a video game. Like you know, like old old NES video games. You'd have to start from level one every time you played it. You didn't like have a save file or anything, and you played it a bunch. And then maybe this time you got to level three, and maybe this time you got to level four. You know, a lot of arcade games mm. like that sort of. And you just see how far you can get. Right. For me, Primer is that game where I try to see how far into the movie I can get before it just loses me completely, and I get a little farther each time. Mm-hmm. And I've read the I've read the interpretation, but it's also just too involved for me to keep in my head in between see, the times of reading. I look at- yeah. This type of movies, it's about trust. It's about I, – I find that Kubrick's films and for that matter, late P.T. Anderson films, There Will Be Blood and The Master, they're all in that headspace of – I guess you could lump Malik in there as well, although he's a bit tangential, um, in that you trust the filmmaker to get there eventually, even if you don't get there on one viewing, you you you've placed your trust in that you. It, it's okay to not know what's happening right now. Many people have watched Primer multiple times and, and stopped even trying to mentally plot out the series of nested loops that it is, and just enjoy it 
for the mesmerizing effect that it is and I, as an and act I, of filmmaking. And Upstream Color has a lovely little filmmaker flourish at one point where the two of them meet on the street and they're talking over each other so much that the filmmaker to me is clearly saying that the dialogue in this movie doesn't matter to the point where they're talking over each other, which is something even Robert Altman doesn't really do. (laughs) Um, When you have characters talking over to the point that it's incomprehensible, you're to me, you're communicating the fact that I will worry about the dialogue. And the the strength of the strength of upstream color over primer um, is that primer was shot for $7,000. And therefore a lot of the problems people have with the exposition is just some of the, some of the audio is not great. And some of the yeah. it like and, and and there's scenes in there that are it, it's just it's a first film yeah I mean, yeah upstream sure. color is upstream color a, on the other hand is technically yeah is technically so much more beautiful and very aesthetically and, and to me, pleasing it, it's a little it's even more inviting to watch again and again because um, there's also a bigger kind of emotional core to like their relationship as well and it's like it's almost but it's like you know the anti before sunrise where like that's all about they're connecting through dialogue and so and and I, I see a lot of what you're saying about identity and I sort of lump issues of identity in issues of relationships as well, well. yeah of course we, like, we all do yeah like like yeah losing yourself can be kind of just yeah and just trying to define yourself when like you know I, I I've been dating my girlfriend for like you know five years Kurt you're married like uh you know just trying to define self can often just well this is why the movie plays as such a great double bill with Solaris. Oh, yeah. Mm. Either version. Although I would argue it plays an even better double bill with – depending – if you're the relationship guy, if you're Patrick, then you go with the Soderbergh Solaris, which that version of Solaris is much more emphasizing the relationship. If, you, if you're a nature and the implacable – idea of nature functions onward and blah 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 and it's a construct of our interpretation of it then you go with the tarkovsky version but it but upstream color is like a perfect encapsulation of both of those filmic themes now i don't even know where the stanislaw lem the original i don't think lem liked either version of of solaris um film wise uh and they're all they're all different so i i look at it as this lovely hybrid but it to get to the Soderbergh one, the one that I watch more without falling asleep, uh, the idea of the woman realizing that she can only be as much as what George Clooney or Chris Kelvin's interpretation of what she was and that in, in a way it almost infuriates her that she cannot be a, a whole person because the planet or the entity that's creating her is only creating her out of a partial – Reality, a subjective side of things, as opposed to who she actually was, and I find with with these two characters reinventing themselves and literally sharing memories at one point. Like, no, that was my memory. No, yeah, that was my memory. This, that's really it's great. getting into that Solaris territory, and, and the score just you know underscores it even more. It's like the blurring um, so, of so, identity. So, Kurt, uh, real, <laughs> I say real quick, but uh, <laughs> like, uh, so you interpret this as being about environmentalism which is nuts to me uh so uh, real quick like well i want to pick up on that um first off i i could talk about the solar stuff but first off i dare you to watch this 
as a double bill with To the Wonder, the Malick film, because again, that's a movie about relationships that I interpret it as a post-environmental film. Um, in that, if you look at the what Malick is saying in parts of the movie, um, he's he's kind of saying that it's okay if you fuck up a relationship. If, if humanity fucks up the environment or whatever, things will march on and things will just evolve out of that situation. And then that just becomes a part of what you are. And I agree and, with that. You, know, you move along with the scars and that real scars quick, you. They're real quick, Kurt. A how deformation many, of you. They are you, right? Real quick, Kurt. How many movies are about how environmentalism is bullshit? Because maybe <laughs> we have a room 237 <laughs> thing where you're just uniquely. He's the only two that I can think of. <laughs> and, and it's funny that, well, I, I watched them months apart. But I, I, I mean, obviously the... Like you said, the filmmaking is evocative at times of Malick's peculiar way of shooting film. So then that primes you um, for uh, – and and then, you know, okay, let me – I'm all over the place. But Primer, what does the title of Primer mean? Is it like a simple manual? Is it priming you? (laughs) Is it it a prime number or the first timeline? Like that's a brilliant title. Yeah. Um, Upstream Color – Okay, in my review of Upstream Color, I start by talking about um, a George Carlin bit, one of my favorite late Carlin bits, where he argues that um, banning plastic bags to save the environment is a stupid idea because what if planet Earth um, Invented or eventually evolved into human beings with the end point of getting plastic. <laughs> and then the human beings are now obsolete. It's covered in plastic. And then the earth moves on without people into its new statement. And, and it's this lovely objective statement of stop being this biblical pre-enlightenment version of humanity that considers ourselves the center of the universe. And I look at Upstream Color as not looking at the relationship of Caruth and Amy Samitz's character. I don't look at it even as the thief's little, you know, Mimetian, like even the dialogue in, of the thief sounds like a David Mamet film. Um, his hmm. little scheme. I don't look at it as the uh, quinoa record companies, um, you know, music sampling or even his personal little um, pig out of body experience thing that he has going on. None of those are, are the, the full picture. The, the, the full picture is encompassing everything. And I think upstream color devotes enough time or lacks focus by moving between those elements to say that none of these things are what the movie is about. The movie is about the larger, circle of cycles which is fascinating because if you draw the timelines of primer Mm. that's the shapes that you get in primer you get nested loops and this is kind of what it is it's cycles within cycles um and and in a way dreams within dreams and if i get even weirder and room 237 er with this thing the the speakers that he puts down to draw them in reminded me massively of the thumpers in dune and the, the and then he calls forth a worm uh out of her body and it's all this hallucinogenic drug which is the what the worms cough up in dune i think shane oh, caruth has wow. been watching a lot of dune <laughs> i hadn't thought of that that's interesting. Like, but I, I don't ultimately, know. I looked at it as, and Walden, of course, if you've <laughs> ever, if you've read Walden, which is a tough read, um, Walden, of course, is a guy in a way eschewing 
um, society and trying to make a go of it on his own, which not only are these people reading Walden, but they're also um, at the end, they come become this little commune at like self-sufficient commune or whatever, where they look after their own pigs uh, or, or whatnot. Um, and the opening shot, if I'm not mistaken, of the movie is a guy carrying those interconnected paper rings. That's correct. So it is a circle, a loop built of smaller loops. Um, and Ooh. I mean, that to me is the signature image in the whole film is, is that opening shot, which in many films, the opening shot is very important <laughs> and, and for him doing that, but in an even more obsessive way, I, I like the idea, or at least I think the idea is when Caruth, who is his character in the movie, he was scammed in a much earlier incarnation of the thief's thing. So he doesn't have him. He may have had him reading Walden, but he wasn't making those paper rings. He was having him peel straws because you, you see Caruth's character later in the movie obsessively peeling straws. And to me, that seems like, you know, the idea of the thief is to hypnotize his characters to make them highly suggestible to do what he wants them to do, which is sign their money away. Um, and, and so I, I, I feel that there's a lot of what's going on in the movie is given to you, even if a character doesn't come right out and give it the standard movie exposition mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. No, I don't deny the relationship element or the, 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 the whole rape kind of element that's going on in the movie. The fact that they're raped financially, the fact that they're physically raped by, you know, his process of getting this worm into them and, and, and the abortion thing. But again, I think I look at it and I look at Caruth and I, I'm sure he would probably completely disagree with me. But I look I, I think of the movie at looking at those things objectively. He he doesn't want you to be emotionally or melodramatically destroyed by the relationship. I, I look at the Caruth Summit's relationship as being very flat, as, as being almost monotone in the sense that it's just human relationships. We put so much importance on them, but they're really just little cogs in a much bigger functioning planetary or galaxy wheels. And, and I, I love that. It seems that very Malikian in that approach. I, I was, I don't know. I was still getting the sense of interconnectivity too. Like, but, you know, he's trying to sort of piece together how we get there and why, like, I, but we mean, we probably will never have the answer and yet should strive to have these sort of real connections, even if, you know, you can perceive them as, you know, uh, transitional or sort of arbitrary or just, well, this is just something that happens and then you got to move on me, to the next it's, thing. It's, it's, I mean, everything you're saying is super interesting. And in fact, one of the things that just sort of exploded in my uh, synapses in my brain is that. Both times I saw the film, I'd forgotten what the opening shot was, and I couldn't yeah. tell if the opening shot was uh, like garbage, like paper, or if it was a plant. And that idea of mm-hmm. a loops of Walden being nature <laughs> is, <laughs> is very fascinating to me, especially since that is, without being primed on that sort of thing, that is how I reacted to that opening well, shot. I could see but, nature um, and human nature. My, um, I, I can't see the film the way you do, and not saying your, fil- your reading is flawed because, but I cannot see the film the way you do, because the idea of... T- 
of putting this in a context of sort of post humanity, um, like Wally, and, and not and not no 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 not, <laughs> not necessarily post apocalyptic, but I mean like post uh, like the idea of putting this in a, in a context where humans are not the most important thing. Um, to me, one of the most stirring sequences in the film is the way this sampler, who is completely stoic the whole film, he's not. He, I saw something very longing in the way that he goes back and is recording these people, and there's a lot of curiosity in the way he records like sounds of a rock sliding down a. Uh, like to me, I love that shit. That's very whole, blowout. That whole it, well, no, well, yeah, it's that's, very that's Burberry that's Cap- Sound Studio. Yeah, even I mean, more. Like, yeah, that, that movie works. That stuff works the same way. Yeah, Burberry it's it's works. and it's and it's mm-hmm. to be. To, me, to, to be literal, it's music concrete. It's this whole sure, movement yeah. that happened in France in the sixties or whatever. But like, um, but like to me, that character is so much about this. And and again, my interpretation of the film doesn't really justify this character either. Like the idea yep. of the sampler and the thief, and trying to reconcile that they wouldn't be connected, and trying to reconcile that they would be connected. Like neither one I can make hundred percent sense of. But I am excited to go back and you know watch the film again and mm-hmm. sort of maybe get more out of it. But to me, like one of the most stirring moments is just that longing, and that if, if the idea is like if, if the I to me the focus of the film is humanity, and the focus of the film is these people's humanity, and it's less about uh, a more objective view of humanity, and more about these people who are completely unable to be objective about a experience in their a specific sort of experience hmm. in their life, and it's about how just framing things through subjectivity. And through each other's subjectivity, they sort of build a kind of picture of what happened to them, but not really. Like, I don't like to me, everything that's compelling about this movie is the humanity. And in, and I so again, not saying your interpretation is wrong because, but I could never read the film like that because mm-hmm. that to me would be saying that the most important part of the film isn't the part that is most compelling. I think it's also about well, being infected, though. Like, I mean, you can look at it in sort of derogatory context of, like, oh, a parasite or a virus isn't literally infecting you for the worse. But in a way, like, uh, love can be infectious and infect you. And I think that's sort of captured in, like, the humanity he presents, especially in the second chapter, if you will. But then, like, the third part is just, like, you know, contemplation and introspection and kind of like a complete visual narrative sense. And that's what, like, I was sort of blown away by that because I'm like expecting some dialogue as they're sort of going through papers or researching or, you know, coming to these like uh, realizations. They didn't need that. No, they didn't. That's what was so great. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. Have either of you guys seen To the Wonder? No. No. Um, Okay, so I... I will. There's... I, I think it's reasonably objective to say that to the wonder is about because several characters say it in the movie like almost every character at one point says this so uh that the idea that um you're 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 doing something for a time or you exist for something for a time and then you move on and you 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 date someone else or you do something different or you do and and to not judge something as being right or wrong or perverted or um, immoral or whatever. I think that Upstream Color is attacking that in in a weird way. It it, it, it feels that it's not – it's saying stop. The, the human stuff is compelling. The human stuff is relevant. 
but the but it's all transient and it's all equal and just move along. That that to me. Well, that's the fluidity part of like in a subjective human experience. What you're feeling right now, particularly if it's an intense emotional, whether it's fear or panic or or love or whatever, that's what the world is for that time being. You lose yourself in that, and I think that upstream color is stepping a bit outside of that and saying that that that's a valid thing to experience, but. It will fade or we will move on and whatever caused that experience, whether it's fear or pain or love, is not as relevant later on because there will be something else on the horizon. I just – I get number one, I just had a weird thought of someone listening to this having not seen Upstream Color. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and they're like being like, what the fuck is this movie even? OK. Number two, I want to ask you about it's how you – review. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about how you view the first 15 minutes because – to me, it's very clear what the emotion behind the first 15 minutes to me. To me, it is not viewing those events as subject as objectively, and it's not saying those events aren't any better or worse than anything that comes before or after it. To me, mm-hmm. those events are clearly meant to be traumatizing and horrifying, and they're disgusting and violent course, and creepy. Yeah. Like to me, to say that what has happened. There's no moralizing or anything. Like, to me, that doesn't jibe with how I view the film. How do you view the first, uh, like, sort of 15 minutes, the first act, if you will, of the film? I I look the, at the first 15 minutes uh, in the same way that I view the first five, 10 minutes of Magnolia or the first 10 minutes of The Brothers Bloom or um, the f- maybe the middle 15 minutes of House of Games. Basically... I view the, I view the first fifteen minutes as a Shane Carruth's filmic interpretation of a Ricky Jay narration. Um, like it just it has that it's a grift, it's a magic trip, it, it's a kind of a heisty <laughs> thing, and you're meant to be pulled in by virtue of people like heisty stuff. Like in, in Inception is, uh, um, you know, I, I get that. Out of the first, and then he and then he pulls back way back, and then gives you a a much richer movie than the first. Like what the hell's going on? There's some sort of weird criminal activity scam going on. Uh, that, that that it's way more about than just a scam. I yeah, hmm. I I definitely don't agree with that. To me, it's all about the emotions involved, and not like if you're talking about a, a David Mamet, Ricky Jay. Sort of thing. It's about excitement and it's about sort of seeing all the pieces work. And to me, that's the first. You're actually describing yeah. the first act of Primer, where where you're seeing all the things coming in and it's slowly going on. It doesn't I, play like I, a preamble. I actually believe that Upstream Color plays in that same fashion. Like I I don't feel as raped as I think the character feels in the first twenty minutes of the movie. When yeah. I watch it, I no, I yeah, I just don't, uh, I don't know, uh, yeah, that's definitely not because it feels how consistent it. with the other parts. I mean, in terms of like, especially, it really propels along. Yeah, I think for me, what it's about is again, like I said, establishing a, a trauma that's number one free of a societal context. Um, it's very personal, such as, such as a rape or an act of violence or something like that, mm-hmm. or a cult, a religion. Y- yeah, like, and number two, it's. And number two, it's about disorienting the audience so that you are in the headspace of someone who's then later in the film trying to put those pieces together. I buy that. That to me is how I – That's. it's really interesting that you view it as 
like separate as something as I I mean obviously I don't think that you, I'm not saying that you're saying that the first uh, 15 minutes and again we're saying 15 minutes I honestly I'm, never, I'm not kept keeping track but we could say the first act yeah, probably I would uh, the first act of the film is like to me the way you describe it sounds so much more lighthearted than it felt. Well, I no, I, I I wouldn't say that mammoth films are lighthearted. Um, I wouldn't say even the opening of Magnolia. I find a there's an anxiety to the opening of Magnolia. Um, I, I never find anything Ricky Jay says or does to be lighthearted. I I believe he. He fucking means it in the same way that Upstream Color means the fact that it's going to rip this woman's identity down to nothing. Um, but I, but I guess what I'm saying is, is that when I watch a movie generally with Ricky Jay in it, um, that I, the process is the thing, um, the the rhythm of the process, the actual cogs turning. In the same way, like you said, with Primer. Um, but then when. She then when you finally get to the scene where she's screaming at the side of the road, they've extracted um, the worm out of her, and she's just in her SUV or whatever in the middle of the median between these two roads, um, the two different directions of traffic in this no man's land of you know again great visual uh, metaphor. Not not only that in the, the in the it, there's also the fact that she is doing the most mundane first world 21st century thing she's looking for continuity errors inside of a shot film there's a nice dovetail with room 237 um and she's ripped out of that in a very biological sense and then she's planted on a strip of natural green grass in between two lanes of traffic so there's your natural and your man-made society crap and 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 that a lot of this movie is like walden like you're getting away from society and forming something post society post environment etc um yeah that was all over the place interesting <laughs> no it's really it's very interesting <laughs> and again this is now film... i feel like one of those guys yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know what you know what upstream color is actually a satirical debunking of intelligent design that's what it is yeah. it's, it's it's basically saying yes the eye, the the human eye or an animal eye could spontaneously form from cells over evolution and blah, blah, blah over millions of years in the same way that the process of this guy uh, harvesting some narcotic out of a plant could then infect people and then somebody could somehow figure out how to find them and infect it with the pigs and then the pigs' corpses could somehow – ramp up the production of the of this um of this thing and that's how cycles form in smaller little rings and and eventually the the random complexity just gets more and more complex as a series of feedback loops and so there you go intelligent design is bullshit you're you're um you're 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 definitely your reading of the the importance of the of the motifs of feedback loops and stuff is definitely i would definitely agree with that much yeah i would definitely say that's part of the structure of the film and something I didn't, I didn't even consider, but how the structure of this film is kind of similar, even though the films are themselves are often so, like in so many ways, so drastically different is kind of similar with uh, primer. Mm-hmm. The last thing, the last thing I should say, when I look at films, when I stop to just being entertained by a movie and, and this happens a lot in 
uh, nautical and science fiction movies, um, the, the, the two easiest ways for filmmakers to communicate thematic gist of their novel is through books read inside a film or prominently displayed – like just book spines or someone is reading a book. That also applies um, to uh, slasher movies in which the people during high school are talking – like they're talking about a book about how evil – about the nature of evil. <laughs> and she yes. looks out and Michael and the Myers other thing is there. is the names of vessels, whether they're spaceships or boats or whatever. Um, you know, you don't name the ship the Nostromo by accident. You know what I mean? You don't right. You don't name – like – and so when you have a book like Walden <laughs> inside – which is it, – it is a funny story story though if you hear Caruth talk about his uh decision to use Walden it was because he wanted to think of the most boring book that he could ever think of for this guy to instill suggestibility into his victims but then once he started rereading Walden <laughs> then all of a sudden his entire movie was buried inside of Walden so it's one of these did you unconsciously do it or did the – is it you're back to Schrodinger's cat again? Yeah. Um, you know, because you picked up Walden, because you thought it was one thing, it then triggered rewrites in the story and it became more Walden-like and as it went along. And of course that sort of thing is so much more fascinating in a film that that one man has so much creative control like he's literally one of the lead actors. Like he has, yeah. he has a lot of control over, like just by nature of being one of the lead actors, over a pretty big percentage of the dialogue of the it, film. It's, it's it's fun reading Walden um, after you watch Upstream Color because I, I I did that and and you just start underlining passages. I don't <laughs> doubt that Walden some that of them are so connected to the film. Um, and and. Uh, I, I would say you're doing yourself a massive disservice if you at least do not try to get through um, that book after multiple viewings of Upstream Color if you're a fan of, of, of the movie. This Again, this is – now we're getting into the same <laughs> process yeah. that these guys at Upstream Color um, yeah. uh, are – sorry that – Room 237. I'm pretty glad we've heard yeah. the significance of making this a bonus episode. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm, uh, th- Yeah, these, these turn out turn out to be a very good pairing. Um, yeah. yeah, especially since like I think Room 237 is like deconstructing like how we deconstruct and for me like this – Upstream color just felt like they're, how we deconstruct our narrative. It, it, yeah, to me, it's they're both. If, if you want, go, if you just take it a step back, like to me, they're both films sort of about the subjectivity of experience. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 definitely. And it's like how we construct ourselves out of those and that, experiences. And whether or not you know you believe what if you sort of read the film the way you did, Jim, or whether you felt read the film the way you know Kurt did, it is about sort of the way people are. You know, they construct their view of the world and mm-hmm. or of themselves and everything. Well, uh, an interesting word, an interesting keyword for upstream color would be intuition. Like there's huge chunks of upstream color that are predicated on intuition. Like they find the sampler based on intuition. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, they find each other <laughs> on the subway <laughs> based on intuition. And and I like the idea that they almost – and I think that was in the weird – and again, I've been primed for this, I think, because in the plot, like the the two word plot description, when it came out on the internet that Shane Carruth was not doing a Topi- topiary, yeah. he was making 
upstream color instead. And the description was a woman gets infected with a parasite and develops a extra sense. Hmm. And I'm like, that's not really the movie. I mean, it kind of is, but it's not really the movie that I watched, is it? I mean, in two sentences? Well, it's I, – I would – in, it's to, not in, a, in, his, in his defense, I'd say it's as good as two sentences as any. <laughs> like, yeah, hard movie to boil into two sentences. I, I, I when that when that movie first screened for critics, or um, it, I don't know if it screened for critics or if it just played a festival that a lot of critics were at Sundance. Okay, but like uh, I just saw because I follow a ton of film critics on uh, Twitter. I just saw like a rash of tweets like mm. trying to trying to make a synopsis for Upstream Color in the first paragraph of this review. This is ridiculous. Like yeah. this shouldn't be so hard. Well, it's almost like when I when I was watching Upstream Color, I even thought of like this is how like Lost failed in its sixth season. Like it just decided to spell out everything and kind of go up its own ass without like just sort of letting the story you know tell itself not necessarily like in the same way that uh Kruth does visually but just uh, you know come to those conclusions in a much more not i guess abstract way maybe well, but here, this is, here, here's jj oh, abrams ted talk you're far better not opening the box well, yeah it's yeah. better to just leave the puzzle box so the shining in a way works because a lot of its imposing visual images have this unresolved right unresolved feeling to them yeah. and a movie it may not make money right away like it depends why you're making a movie are you making a movie to make ass tons of money make iron man movies they're they're easily digestible there's nothing in them you eat them and you shit them out and you're done with them um but if you want to make a movie that people are still watching 30 years from now, you, you probably have to go out of your way to make it a bit esoteric. It's the reason why Donnie Darko works pretty good in the 19 or the 2001 cut, but the director's cut is awful. Yeah. It, it, it just wrecks the whole movie. And you're like, how can helping you wreck the whole movie? Well, because you, I, I would rather a movie be an outward spreading of possibilities than a contracting into one thing. Yeah. And I, and I, I do, I do want to emphasize like, again, the thing about upstream color that to me, like, obviously if you walk away with no interpretation of what this film was about subtextually, probably, probably not, you probably get not going to get nearly as much out of it as someone who did, mm-hmm. but like even things that you don't necessarily know what they're about, this final shot uh, of the main character holding a pig that has something of her in it and like just this sort of that image of her holding that pig and being in it, like that is whether like whether or not you read this film as being about trauma or whatever that like just by what happens just by the events of the film that's a, still a stirring image oh, God, and there's yes. a lot of this film that whether or not well, you have an interpretation of what is happening it's still super effective just visually on, just, it, it, just on storytelling nice, level yeah storytelling it's, it's a nice dovetail well it's not nice but it's an interesting pair of images in that the impregnation of this worm causes her to become sterile and then later on in the movie, the sampler basically smothers the offspring of the pigs. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure someone could read this as a as a um, 
you know, male control over female sexuality movie if you wanted to go that way too. Hmm. And I mean, that's part of what makes it very effective is that, and rewatchable. Is that and rewatchable is that no matter what your meaning is, the whole reason you're able to see meaning in the first place is because of the superlative filmmaking at his Absolutely. Oh, and, for and sure, that, for and sure. It applies to Kubrick's films, it applies to Malick's films, it, it applies to P.T. Anderson's films. I would That's say a little less with P.T. Anderson. They can just overwhelm you with the power of their images. And what you said about like all these theories and, and kind of stuff, that came to me like – much after watching the movie, when I was watching Upstream Color, I was watching Upstream Color. Like I was just, and and I I know Caruth says this a lot of the times. He's like, I don't. It, it's not a puzzle. Like, don't. It's watch very straightforward. Like it's a puzzle. Just let it flow into you. Let it. Let it. Let experience the damn thing rather than you know tweet it well yeah <laughs> you know, like it's but it's, it's just more more of this comes upon reflection it's not like i had these instant everything thoughts that i've talked about on this podcast is a function of reflection a second viewing mm-hmm. reflection on that second viewing conversation with many people um both in text form on the internet and over beers in a bar like i've spent just way too much time <laughs> and that says a lot about the movie, movie. itself <laughs> and, and that's what makes often a, a movie that becomes my favorite movie of the year is it's very much based on the filmmaking and my initial reaction to it. But it's also very much based on all the extra cinematic elements. Like if I get in great conversations or if my worldview is altered in some significant way, then that, of course, is going to give me more of a sense that that's an important film to me. Um, I find my worldview is far more altered by watching esoteric fictional films than watching documentaries, which are – or issue documentaries because then it's just facts. That or, is – yeah. Yeah. That's, Whereas I find something that emotionally moves me and then causes me to think later and uh, like allows me to do the the heavy lifting, I'll probably get more out of it. Yeah. Um, that's sort of the uh – Oh, what is it that Mike D'Angelo has a really good phrase? Really good phrase for those kinds of the, the um, like the phrases that are just just have an axe to grind, and they have a hmm. they're just trying to set out to change something. Uh, uh, advocate documentaries. Oh that's, yeah, that's my yeah. key problem with a lot of advocate documentaries is that they're just uh, they tend to be less formally interesting, and they're just more uh, about just trying presenting to, information. Yeah, presenting information and. Uh, I mean, obviously, you you know, you could probably call the Thin Blue Line in some ways an advocate documentary. Like there are exceptions, of course, but uh, well, the the thing is, and I know this phrase is brutally overused, but the best movies, in their own way, are fever dreams. They're 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 not all like they're not all linear and tight little packages with little bows yes. on them. There, there's some movie that, that confounds you, that makes you want to lean forward and know a little more and, and, and this sort of thing. If the movie just gives you everything in a straightforward manner, you go, well, what's for dinner? And, and, and I want to say, just to sort of wrap this whole thing up and to tie it back to Room 237, the reason those films are so powerful is because so much of it happens on your end and not on the screen's end. Oh, sure, yeah, that's exactly why we love having these conversations. And and this is exactly why I hate 
Marvel entertainment movies, like Marvel Studios movies, because they they feel like they do all the work for you, or or they, they don't even care. Like, mm-hmm. like they're, they're not about they're about consumption as yeah. opposed to integration. I think there's a lot of, but I think there's a lot of entertainment, film entertainment that is about consumption that isn't evocative. Like, there's not there's not really a lot that's in that's evocative about Star Wars, like. <laughs> like Star Wars doesn't make you think. Like I think I mean, and I'm not saying I'm obviously uh, not defending. I, I all would Marvel. disagree. A lot of people have spent far too much time thinking about. Star yeah, Wars. but that's because they were just mesmerized by special effects, or like, and or they or types in their childhood. I don't. I mean, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Star Wars, and I'm certainly not defending all Marvel movies. But I would I would say there is something to be said about just a well constructed piece of entertainment um, that just uh, that doesn't have a lot more uh, weight to it than just, you know, uh, just doing sort of its job. I think there's something that there's valuable about that. I think there's oh, a yeah, lot like of the, way, like the Avengers. Way, Patrick, I would, I much prefer in all but very few cases, a movie that takes me out of my comfort zone than puts me in my comfort zone. You yeah. know, that, and I, I get taken for task with this all the time on our podcast because I call movies that put people in their comfort zone pandering. And I and I you know in movies that take them out they're they're expanding <laughs> and I prefer mm. and I know that I think uh, there's value in both. There, I suppose, but um, there's more value in one than the other. Um, yeah, I would I would say that Jaws is probably the like probably the best example of a film that's just a really well told story. Oh that God, yeah, isn't necessarily enriching or evocative or something that you have to puzzle over. That's just. Oh, here's some really cool characters that you want to hang out with, and here's some good lines, and here's some exciting scenes, and here's some action that's really mm-hmm. well edited and shot, and like that. That to me just, and again, uh, not to turn it into a debate because you could you could list the all the problems that the Avengers or Iron Man three have on a script level, on a filmmaking level, on all sorts of levels. But I but jo- Jaws works, works because it's about people. I mean, taking the shark. Yeah, and I and I would. Moment, yeah, it just about, works because the people in it feel like people. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's and I think that's true of the Avengers. <laughs> that's true. That's, I mean, no, they're characters. Uh, they're characters. Well, they don't. They, it's not. It's not a. It, the, no, the Avengers the in the Avengers feel like Joss Whedon's interpretation of people. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't like you don't like that. I do like you uh, like their character. I, I don't yeah. like it. I love it in Firefly. I just don't like. And it. And apparently, you like it in Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars. They don't feel like like none of these. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I have, you don't want to go with the Star Wars. I'm not really much of a Star Wars fan, so uh, not anymore. It's, it's just slowly been sucked out of me. So I, I I don't know where I stand on that anymore. But I, I did like it. Uh, that's that's kind of beside the point. But anyway, two great films. I, I think. Oh we, yeah. <laughs> I think we, I'm like but, okay. The last thing I want to say on you get out of a movie what you bring in. Okay, um, much like the, the the Jesus Camp example I used earlier, there's another type of film, and and one might argue that every film falls into this bucket. But one of the most fascinating things it can be with novels, it can be with painting, it can, it can be with anything. But I find it very for me with film is that I can watch a movie and then come back. 15 years later and watch the same movie and see a totally different movie yeah. or watch a movie and mm-hmm. utterly not get a movie. Cause I just don't have either a life experience or be the right life experience. Not that not right. Isn't correct, but 
but uh, experience in such a zone that you can the get relevant into that life type experience. of film. I mean, like mm-hmm. the, um, Fellini's Eight and a Half is like the best example ever because I I watched it the first time when I was like eighteen and got like I I couldn't even get through it. I, I just just did not like the movie at all. And then I watched it again when I was like twenty four, and I'm like, okay, I got through it, but it was just kind of sat there. And then I watched it again when I was like thirty one or thirty two, and I'm like, how did I not see what I saw when I watched that movie? And then watching it again last year, uh, like the movie is like, you know, this is one of the greatest movies ever made and i understand why people love this movie so much and and i imagine when i'm 50 i'll get even more out of it it's just and and i think there's just a ton of movies like i said you might even argue every movie and my feelings on um uh, star wars or police academy or or whatever is is such a function of where i was when i watched them and i can leave that behind like i don't i've moved on i'm a different person from when i watched that movie and and i yeah. think ultimately upstream color that's a lot of what upstream color is is about that i, I and, and any movie about obsession room 237 some of it is just getting it out of your system to being able to to move on there was this hmm. documentary uh, from a couple of years ago called Resurrect Dead, the um, the Toynbee Tile mystery, which in a way is a nice kind of companion piece to like Room 237 because it also that. involves Kubrick. And, and I know I was listening to an older version, an older podcast from the Director's Club where you had Matt Gamble on talking about the Coen brothers and he was talking about this movie. He didn't like right. it, even though I recommended it to him, blah, blah, blah. But the idea that these people get a lot of this out of their system by obsessing over it to a point with which they can then move on the same way. If you get a, a song trapped in your head, you just listen to the song and then you can move on. I, I feel that's how I feel about a lot of movies when I was younger. Um, if I watch them, I can say, Oh yeah, I love that as a kid. It's shit now, <laughs> or it's, it's even better now, whatever. And then I can kind of, Move on. Oh, I don't. Uh, I, don't yeah. I don't care what anyone says. Flight of the Navigator is still one of the best movies ever made. Yeah, or Last Starfighter. Yeah, for sure. Those. Those will never. We'll, let's never watch those movies ever again. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, now, here's the interesting thing: is when you have children, you get to watch a very unvarnished reaction of them to things that you loved as a child. And there is just as much awesome as disappointment in that particular process. <laughs> I can like, imagine. You know, like sometimes what you thought was the best thing ever as a kid, your child will will be so utterly unengaged with it that you're like, what just happened there? Yeah, like the time my dad showed me Apocalypse Now. <laughs> And like I was like, what is going on with this ending? I don't know. I don't get it. But I'm sure if I watch it now. But then you watch it in a few years. Yeah. And the, et cetera, et cetera. Have yeah. you not seen Apocalypse Now since you were a little kid? Um, no, I've seen it three times total, and I haven't watched it since like maybe ten years ago. So I want to rewatch it. Well, anyway, yeah. So um, that's good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's interesting because like I was so moved by this movie. And not necessarily like 
focusing on the relationship aspect, which is interesting for me because I usually gravitate towards right. that. I, I was a little surprised. Because I was just feeling more of a, you know, I hate to use the word spiritual, but Tree of Life made me feel spiritual. And this sort of like made me realize our sort of constant stream of narrative and we we live in this, you know, need for interconnectivity, but we don't really understand how that forms, but we still wind up like lost in that pool trying to grab for stones. And I think that's what's what I really, it really got me thinking in better terms about myself because every now and then I go through these dark times and like seeing this movie felt more life affirming and not necessarily an obvious way. Like yet I know it's, it's very simple. A, it's certainly not a feel good hit of the summer. Yeah, right. No. But I still like really f- felt like connected to the movie in a way that rarely happens. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, at the same time I can still connect to something so honest and simple, like stories we tell because it's, it's all there you know, put out to you in a very direct way, like, oh, this is what it's kind of about. But then, like, you can sort of interpret it differently because there's certainly elements to it where you go, oh, well, this happened to me directly, so I'm going to have a larger... It's going to have a larger impact so, on yeah, me. Yeah, that, that part of the film is going to weigh heavier. Yeah, and, yeah. And do you find it validating, bonding, or horrifying the scene where they realize that they both have the exact same memory and they're almost fighting over whose memory it is. Hmm. Uh, Maybe both. I mean, (laughs) couples do that when they've been together long enough, they, they have their own language (laughs) and their own set of signifiers. But I think Carruth takes it much further in upstream color where they literally cannot decide. Like it has something to do with a kid, in a swimming pool or something. And yeah. she says, you're always telling my stories back to me. And he's like, no, 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 that's my story. I, and I found it's kind of horrific. It's kind of like the Blade Runner, like when Harrison Ford tells her the story about the spider and, and she's like, oh, but wait a minute, that's my memory. And he's like, no, it's someone else's huh. memory. I, I find that element kind of, because it is stealing your individuality. I, it's scary, but it's yeah. also, to me, There's this film shows a strength in, yeah. in losing yourself yeah. in each other. And to oh, me, sure. it's, I mean, it's, to me, there's nothing in this film that uh, you're only sp- supposed to view or feel one thing about. Like, that's what gives it power, and that's also yeah. probably why so many people would have so many varying uh, interpretations, just based on what their feelings, how they weigh their feelings on a certain thing is but uh, yeah i i think jim just sort of wrap it all up because uh, we sort of uh should wrap up the podcast but basically it's sort of you know interesting that yeah this uh, it, we're all trying to shape our stories and we're all trying to put these experiences that we can't define just wait till you see stories tiny, we tell into tiny little <laughs> tidy little bo- well uh, uh, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Take This Waltz. So but I'm, I'm just saying that like, that's, find that's, a lot in, that's thematically what the movie well, becomes. But, okay, but I'm saying I find a lot in Take This Waltz very honest, but also I just don't find the film very compelling. You'll find stories we tell by far like her best work. Okay, cool. But, um, but, for sure. But anyway, uh, I, both these films are sort of interesting when you view them through that oh, angle yeah. of the oh, way we... Actually, I, I just thought of something, uh, speaking of uh, Canadian cinema. Real quick. Uh, Upstream Color would be a pretty interesting double bill with Café de Flore. Ooh, another movie I loved, and mostly because of you guys, 
championing it on uh, the Cinecast. I think I can, I can see that. I mean, especially once you get you know wind of how things are. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Element to Cafe de Flore that. Yeah, Yeah. you sort of build your own narrative. I can't want to to say too much. (laughs) Like I felt myself going into the. Not necessarily like the Vanilla Sky territory because that's like a lesser version of that. But the thing is about this movie too is like I really responded to the sound design and the rhythm of the music and like just the the the, the you know the Foley artist aspect of the uh, sampler because I I enjoy doing that on my own for fun. But it's also like I think it sort of speaks to how we can be you know transfixed by a sound or a person uh, the epiphany or... i just had is uh, he shapes the sounds the way yeah, he wants exactly by t- by taking an, and that's by what taking an does. objective sound which is a yeah. rock sliding and then just changing the pitch and altering it until it becomes this music that he right. can, that he writes See, the melody for i i could take that a lot further in in the in the sense that he's taking something natural mm-hmm. manipulating it mechanically and then getting frustrated by the experience and throwing it all away, back to nature. Literally. But he doesn't throw it Meaning all away. Like any semblance of control is is fleeting, and that these cycles become self-sustaining for a time and then disappear. But it's inevitable, though. We we wind up like desiring control to the point where, you know, she kills the sampler. You know, it's like she wants to assert herself. And yeah. maintain her individuality. A fight club on a long enough timeline, everybody's life expectancy drops to zero. Yep, it's a good way to end it. Yeah, it's still a good way to end it. By the way, we're all going to kill ourselves after this podcast. No, thank you, Kurt, for coming on. Yeah, uh, it was we don't, great. We don't normally get a chance to just talk about two movies that are in theaters. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's sort of the standard approach for a lot right. of film podcasts, but we don't get to do it too often. But this was a lot well, of and, and uh, although this is a weird one in that like they're kind of. They've kind of been sort of almost in theaters for kind of sort of some amount of time. Like it's not like a it's not like a wide release either of these films. They're both very niche. Yeah, they're they're more. I I would imagine the bulk of the people watching these films are not watching them in a theater. They would be watching them as a streaming. Which is a probably probably a shame, but I imagine yeah, our friend our that, friend Russ I, I, our friend I can't Russ really just speaks uh, so much to Room Two Thirty Seven. I think it plays fine on a television while you're by yourself in a room without the communal experience. But I, I would argue that Upstream Color is very demanding of a, of a good good projection, good sound, and an audience uh, with you. Our um, our friend Russ just uh, got it from iTunes and he watched the whole thing on his phone and he fell in love. With it. <laughs> that seems to be happening more than ever. Uh, that's bizarre. I've watched it. I've watched it on um, Vimeo and I've watched it in the theater. So I, I've seen it in both formats. And yeah. I, I the first experience was in the theater and uh, and and I I mean it's hard to disentangle things because usually the first experience is the first experience, um, but. I mean, the movie sounds so good. The movie looks so good that uh, the bigger and louder, the better. Yeah, and bring it back to yeah, like imagine you know, watching this on a on a subway on your phone. I, I just it's like watching a Malik movie on your phone. Yeah, who who would do that? Like it happens. Um, I mean, that's a convenience factor, and plus, it's kind of the way things are going with you know streaming. I mean, phone is a little too small for my I'd taste. Love to get into this, but I feel that 
when you watch something when it's too convenient to watch something it loses its I can yeah okay it loses it you 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 are less committed to this, it and I would is, argue yeah. color it's gonna be a whole other podcast Malik films <laughs> demand a certain commitment this is watching. a this is a whole other podcast that we're not gonna get into <laughs> yeah no kidding it's it's easy to go on these tangents with I can't all I don't us. I don't have the I actually just physically don't have the motor functions to have a smartphone like I, my fingers are not cannot manipulate smartphones correctly. Mm. Um, I can't do a smartphone keyboard, so that's never a problem for me. But uh, anyway, uh, so like I said, <laughs> it was nice to have you on, Kurt. Yeah, Kurt. Thanks as always. You're always a joy to talk to. Well, thank you for having me. It's yeah. always a pleasure can, uh, to come on and, and really get into it, really, uh, really get into it this time. This yeah. was the most obsessive podcast episode I think I've ever been on. Yeah, <laughs> appropriately. Um, of course, you can read Kurt's writing on row three. Um, yeah, and you're on Twitter at Triflick, I believe? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, you can find uh, other stuff over at Twitch Film as well, right. in, buried in the large uh, stream of content that is Twitch. And you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com, and you can send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I just recently uh, posted up a piece about the Chicago Critics Film Festival, which was kind of, I don't normally do extensive write-ups, but it was great to do that for once. So yeah. check that out. Cool. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick Rapol And me at uh, Instant Gym, the same as uh, over at Letterboxd. And Instant my uh, viewing journal is still Martha Marcy Nash and Young, uh, wordpress.com. And uh, our next official episode will be up within a week, practically. Yeah. Uh, it's on David Lynch, as we brought up earlier, and it's going to be exciting. Get, get your Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive on. And I think I think Mulholland Drive is still on uh, streaming on Netflix. So Is it? Yeah, I think so. That's good. Yeah. Don't, don't watch it. it on your phone, though. Don't watch it on your phone. <laughs> since David Lynch will like come out of the screen and kill you. That's fine. Yeah. I, got, I got a prototype Google Glass. I'll just watch it on my glasses. <laughs> um, All right, guys. So, well, yeah, until next time. Yeah. This is Jim. And this is Patrick. Yeah. I accidentally said it until next time and threw off the rhythm. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Good night and good luck. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>